Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and our Week in IndyCar episode, my favorite episode of the year, our post-Indy 500 Week in IndyCar brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. We have for you your brand new Indy 500 winner, Simon Pagano. Supposed to have about 10 minutes with good old Simon. Ended up being about 15 minutes or so. A little fun anecdote that means nothing. We're scheduled to record this morning, Monday, at about 9 a.m. And got a text from IndyCar just a couple minutes beforehand asking if I could push it back about an hour and a half. Wasn't super happy to get that note just because I had structured a whole bunch of uh, interviews to follow right behind Simon and then meant to get out the door and get to the hospital. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, but again, uh, they said that, you know, really needed to bump this and uh, it was uh, the boss that he needed to speak to. So my initial thought was, oh, well, I guess Roger Penske needs something from him, but that's a little strange. And uh, I'm fairly convinced, as Simon mentioned here, that uh, I got bumped, as I should, well, by just about anybody, but uh, got bumped by the American president. So uh, pretty cool to think that for a kid who grew up uh, the son of uh, su- supermarket owners in a small French town um, is getting a chance to uh, speak with the president of the United States of America and uh, when there's, as he mentions, there's nothing political about this here. We're not talking any of that stuff. Just thinking about what it means for a kid to focus his life and career in America. Uh, someone who is, you know, from a, a amazing country filled with beautiful people uh, to come here and try and live his dream, and then just, you know the thought of speaking to an American president after achieving one of the greatest possible achievements in all of sports. Um, Yeah, really, really happy for Simon. So spend some uh, good time here with Simon on the phone. And I'll mention here at the outset, and this is definitely would appreciate a little bit of uh, understanding if it's necessary in the uh, interview with Simon and Ben I've known Simon for more, I don't know, if a quarter of my life, a fifth of my life, whatever it is. Uh, I've known Simon for a long time, been personal friends with him for a long, long time. So uh, the fact that someone who outside of being uh, a person that I work with, media versus driver and uh, all of that kind of professional stuff, um coincidentally someone who I have called a friend and has called me a friend for many years also won the Indy 500 on Sunday. And the same is true for his longstanding race engineer, Ben Bretzman. So uh, I'll just tell you right up front, when we get into the interviews with the two of them, this is not super official podcast, professional media interaction. And so it's really loose and it's just me being very, very raw and direct and feeling so happy for Simon. So again, um, this is just me talking with a couple of friends who had what I believe is the greatest days of their life. Uh, definitely in terms of uh, sporting lives, at least. So I hope you enjoy these two conversations. They're uh, 
little bit emotional in some places, silly in others. With Ben in particular, he offers some really great insights about Simon and his development and evolution year to year, coming as far as he did. Um, yeah, so hope you enjoy that. Then third, we move into Santino Ferrucci, and also really happy for him, not just finishing as a top rookie, seventh overall with the Dale Coin Racing team, but also just seeing how, seeing and listening. So I've known this kid since he was about 12, I believe, 12 or 13, whatever it is. Um, you know, he's, he, he made a rightful ass out of himself last year. Uh, well-known, highly publicized stuff that embarrassed him. And just having known him since he was a, a real kid, um, it's been cool to see the lows that he reached and what looks like the highs that he is coming towards and the mistakes made last year, not erased by a seventh place at Indianapolis. Not at all. Completely unrelated things. The things that I'm happiest about, which maybe you'll hear a little bit towards the very end of our conversation is just seeing what he has become, who he has become at least the path he has been on since last year and the fact that in IndyCar this year he has been a model citizen and has been putting in work and quietly impressing folks and looked like a veteran on Sunday so really happy for Simon and him achieving this dream which he mentions really happy for Ben and uh, now becoming again what we believe the first brothers between himself and his brother Eric Bretzman to win the Indy 500 as race engineers and also really stoked for Santino uh, just to see this kid seeming to be in a place where he is going to go from strength to strength and maybe if he stays on that path in another year or two or whatever the timeline is hopefully folks who have written him off and continue to react very harshly and negatively towards him. Um, we'll see that, you know, it's a kid said and did some dumb things. And if he stays on this correct path, maybe some folks who haven't been willing to give him a second chance just might. So not saying that our interviews will change any of that, but anyways, um, just listening to him as a kid and what he learned and also sharing how he learned to do some of what he did uh, during the race and paying you know, his respects to those he learned it from. Anyways, uh, you might see the side of Santino that a lot of us have known was there all along, just maybe got lost uh, along the way a little bit. So anyways, those are the first three interviews. Then I move into a whole buttload of questions that you all sent in for me. And so I move that to the end because our guests uh, are always going to come first, unless you guys, unless I don't have many questions, which I can get out of the way easily. Um, we we'll always try and go to our guests first because that's what this show is about. Uh, the guests and hopefully the fun and whatever cool things they might share, help us learn a little bit more about uh, our beloved IndyCar series. So get through a bunch there. This is a long episode. The, uh, the post Indy 500 week in IndyCar tends to be, bit of a longer uh longer 
digestive event. And I close with uh, some personal stuff. And yeah, um, some of you might know that I had to uh, pack up and leave in a hurry Tuesday evening from Indianapolis, caught the uh, whatever the opposite of a red eye is, a black eye maybe, <laughs> the first painfully early flight out uh, Wednesday morning at 6.10 to get home um, when my wife was admitted to the emergency room um, that Tuesday night. And so uh, save that to the end. That's at the very end. I'll probably have worn you out by then with uh, all the Q&A from what you sent in, but um, I'll just tack that on at the very end. Mention quickly before we get to Simon that what has gone on with having to drop everything and leave Indy, knowing that cancer has decided to double its efforts. It's a big fear there that's not cancer-related uh, something separate. And that is as someone who is a small business owner, uh, have been since I started this media career, uh, been an independent contractor. I was with speed slash Fox for whatever that was seven, eight years. Then they, uh, speed went away. Um, been with racer now for, I don't know, six, seven years. um, it's kind of a truism, I think, for most folks who uh, own their own small businesses or have, you know, major client like Racer that, uh, I mean, Road and Track's been actually my longest standing client since I started effectively back in, I don't know, 2006, 2007. But Racer, as you probably know, fills 95, 99% of my daily workload, which I love. Um, you don't work, you don't eat. And that, that's just the reality here. Uh, and again, all chosen, right? Um, there's no two weeks paid vacation. There's no sick days, sick leave, any of that kind of stuff. I'm not an employee. Uh, so, you know, racer is truly not obligated to me in any way, shape or form. If I have something go sideways at home, although I never expected anything negative at all. There's still just always that little fear in the back of my head of if you're not working, you're not earning, you're not eating. It's, it's a one-to-one ratio. And knowing that I would have to make that a zero instead of a one and just make this something where potentially for the next weeks, months ahead, I might not be working uh, or working minimally, doing a little bit here or there instead of the really steady, heavy presence every day, helping to power a lot of racers, daily content production. Um, yeah, there's absolute fear again, not related to, to racer itself, but just if you're not working, not earning, not eating and trying to summon the courage to call racer founder, uh, president Paul Fanner and say, after getting, you know, shared with him some of the, the diagnoses and such, and it just started to occur to me that, okay, this is not going to be a quick turnaround. Um, before I could call him and try and figure out how to say, I think I might not be able to do the thing you pay me to do. 
for a while and fearing that I might not be needed and or might not have something to come back to. Um, Paul called me, called and said, your new job is taking care of your wife. That is what we want you to do. That's the thing we need you to do. That's your new priority. Don't worry about racing. Don't worry about us. We'll still be here whenever you're ready. If you can contribute, great. There's no expectations. Um, removing that fear, knowing that I can spend morning through night taking care of my wife, whether she's in the hospital now like she is or when we get her home and just, you know, looking after her, taking her to appointments, cooking meals, doing laundry, doing all the things of just allowing her to focus on recovery. Um, yeah, uh, just amazing, truly amazing to know that, uh, although they didn't have to and, uh, just amazing to know that my racer family between Paul Fanner, Mark Lindenning, Lawrence Foster, uh, the amazing Robin Miller, it's just been the thing that you dream of and hope happens. Not a surprise because they are all high character people. Miller, maybe not, but um, let's get going. Let's celebrate a not very formal <laughs> conversation, just a conversation among friends. Uh, that being Simon Pagano, then with Ben Bretzman, then some fun stuff, hopefully with uh, young Santino Ferrucci. Then I'll get to the really long list and cool list of questions you sent in for me and some of the dialogue we had there. Uh, some of the questions I posed to you that you filled in on Kyle Novak race director offer some great stuff on some of the yellows and reds and how things were handled towards the end of the race to provide some clarity there. And then uh, we'll close with a little bit of a personal update um, that I'm hoping we'll kind of keep in the family a little bit here. And just as I, uh, refer to racer as family. Um, not BSing you when I tell you that this little thing we do each week of talking about IndyCar and you all sending in awesome questions and having guests on to answer those and whatever interaction. Um, I don't know most of you in terms of in person, know your dog's name, father's name, where you grew up, which high school you went to. Um, we don't know each other like that, but I do think of you all collectively like family, uh, just for the uh, ongoing support and love that you bring on a weekly, if not daily basis. So let's get going with the Jean Gerard. You know, I couldn't get him to say, Ricky Bobby, I'm coming for you during our interview, but just know that I tried. Is that an Indy 500 winner on the phone? Apparently so. <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm getting a little teary-eyed. I'll be really honest. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you, thank you. That was a crazy day. <sighs> Woo! This is what you deserve, though, Simon Pagano. Putting in many years of good work and also yeah. being... A model citizen, too, right? I mean, I realize that doesn't have anything to do with driving a race car, but you're someone who's only ever added to the paddock 
uh, brought warmth, been incredibly kind to fans, tried to be a good person as well, lead by example. So when you have those things come together in your first Indy 500 win, I mean, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks. What more you do? Uh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. That means a lot. <clears throat> I honestly don't realize it yet. I need. I want to watch the race. I haven't had any time to myself yet, but uh can't wait to watch the race and realize what just happened. So, brother, I know this is something that you and I discuss probably more frequently than we should, but your IndyCar career, your champ car career, you had one year. Uh, the merger happened, and you were not one of those who were fortunate to continue moving right into the IndyCar series when Champ Car went away, and you had to take this left turn to sports cars. Did you believe you would not only get back to open wheel, but possibly achieve something as amazing as becoming the winner of the Indy 500? Well, I never, <clears throat> never stopped believing. You know, I've I've always had dreams my whole life. You know, I. I dreamed at six years old that I uh, could be a race car driver someday, and uh, it happened. I dreamt, uh, I dreamt that you know uh, I was going to win races later. You know, it happened, uh, and certainly um, IndyCar has always been a dream. I went, I dreamt about going to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. I did. Uh, so I've always, and that's a message I want to send to kids, um, especially young racers. Um, my my message that I'm going to try to spread uh, is, is that, you know, if you have dreams, you just have to work hard and, and believe in yourself and, you know, work, work. And, and if you think you work hard, just work twice as much and, and it's going to happen. You just have to believe in it. Never dip, never doubt yourself. Just um, keep trying, keep trying and never give up. Really, that's it. That's, that's what came to me right after the race. And that's why I still have, on my heart um, it's just that you know that never giving up attitudes just been a blessing and um, when I went to the fair and um, you know Jill asked me right away he said I hope you you know I, I want you on the on the team only if you don't think about IndyCar in IndyCar no more because this is a long-term deal blah 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 I said yes Jill yeah yeah but <laughs> inside I was I was lying uh, you know I was telling him that but that was using that path to try to go back to IndyCar at some point. You've always been very generous with your time here for my week in IndyCar show, and you know that it's driven by listener questions. So going to get to some of those that have been sent in. I know we have a limited amount of time because you made the mistake of winning the Indy 500. Now you no longer own your calendar, my friend. <laughs> I don't own myself no more. <laughs> no, no. Um, let me throw in two more quick ones from me. First of all, Having watched you really make it seems like a concerted effort to pour milk all over your damn self. Yes. How are you smelling about two, three, four hours after the race? I'm guessing you were a funky Frenchman. Well, let me tell you, it was actually surprising. It wasn't bad at all. I thought it was going to be really bad, and turned out it must be a really special milk because, first of all, it tasted sweet and silky and powerful. And I loved that milk like I've never loved milk before. Uh, it was whole milk, so I expected it to turn into something really cheesy, but it did not. And uh, my suit is kind of crackly right now, but um, uh, it's going to go to the museum, uh, <laughs> the Penske Museum, and um, it doesn't smell that bad. So I don't know what they do with that milk, but uh, surprisingly, it's 
didn't turn out to be as bad as I thought. You're a fromage suit. I love it. I love it. Exactly. Let's talk (laughs) about that crazy, tall, spiky haired race engineer of yours. You guys have been on a heck of a journey. Uh, what back since 2012 was it with uh, with the Schmidt 2009. team or 2009? Yeah. I apologize. An IndyCar, Highcroft, yeah. yeah, from High, your time at Highcroft and IndyCar since 2012. Tell me about you and Ben Bretzman staying together, remaining committed, even years like last year that didn't go according to plan. You guys remain faithful in one another. What does it mean to win this race, win this month with Big Ben? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, it's phenomenal to have such relationship with him. Um, you know, he's he's been my big brother, um, and he believes in me more than anyone believes in me in the race car. You know, he's 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 seen what I can do, and he's always. If anyone is, I know that he's going to be the he would be the last one to ever give up on me. Uh, he has strong belief in me, and uh, I have enormous belief in him. Um, Proof is, first time he asked me to go full throttle in qualifying at Milwaukee, I did, uh, even though the ride aids didn't allow me to. Mm. <laughs> but uh, that's the kind of relationship we have, is um, full trust in each other, um, and we we thrive each other's confidence. And I, I, I'm, you know, obviously we went from Icroft winning sports car championship to together, um, Schmidt-Peterson um, and Honda, uh, beginning of my IndyCar career. And then, uh, fortunately enough, uh, he was hired by Penske to uh, move on and follow me, uh, follow me uh, with the 22 team. So he's uh, instrumental instrumental in my uh, success. I couldn't done it without him. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't have done it without all my guys and my crew. They, they were fastest on pit lane. I mean, it's just sensational uh, to be able to have such a team with behind you. But Ben, um, you know, we've we've won so many races and. We've gone through up and downs. And like you said, 2018 was tough. But it's because of 2018 that we're so strong right now. Um, It has nothing to do with any momentum or any kind of special driving or anything like that. It's just what we learned last year when it was a tough time with the race car and and me not being happy with it. It's what we learned then that's, you know, paying off now. And, you know, I always say the hard work always pays off. Also really happy for your crew chief, Trevor Lacasse, who was you know, promoted not too long ago to that role to see him come up through the Penske organization. It's just an awesome story from top to bottom. Let's jump into a couple of questions, my friend. First one here from Adam Smith. Piggybacks on something you started with a little bit. He says, great run. Is this Indy 500 win something you dreamed about since childhood, or is it something you've grown up to appreciate and desire as an adult? Um, no, I always dreamt about it. I I, I remembered, uh, um, you know, I was six, seven years old watching Indianapolis 500 at my grandpa's um, house. Everybody was at the pool outside swimming, and I was inside watching the Indy 500. And, um, you know, I believe it was in 91, 92. I remember Rick Mears and the Marlboro Colors, um, and that's how I got hooked. You know, we had a, that big box TV. And uh, the lines, there were lines on the TV. It was it was almost the picture wasn't great, but almost. Um, and um, you know, at that time, I was like, wow, you know, IndyCar was huge too at the time. So shortly after that, Mansell came to IndyCar uh, from F1, and Mansell was a big guy in Europe. So 
we all knew that IndyCar was just as big as F1 at the time. So I quickly um, grew fond of the Indianapolis 500. That I knew that the 24 hours of Le Mans, Monaco Grand Prix and the 500 were the biggest race in the world. So um, surely enough, for a kid that wants to be a race car driver, you uh, it becomes your dream. Oh, well, let's go to... Adam Jensen, who says, what was going through your mind when Alex Rossi took the lead from you with three laps to go? Uh, actually, I said uh, to myself, perfect. Really? <laughs> yeah, I said, perfect. Um, you know, uh, there was a reason why I, I took that restart on lap 15. I, uh, there's a reason why I was so aggressive trying to get the lead back. Was I wanted to check how long it was going to take him to get me back to prepare the end. Um, you know, I've watched and studied so many tapes. I've seen uh, finishes like that uh, and studied it when it was Montoya against Power, when it was uh, Hunter against Castro Neves. Uh, there's been a few finishes like that and uh, <clears throat> studied a lot. And I knew, I knew what to do. I knew the tricks. I knew what to use. But I was in a very good space of mind. I was really calm. Everything was quiet. The car was not going fast anymore. Everything was slow motion. And uh, I took the lead and then I counted the laps until he got me back and how he was getting me back. Then I passed him back as soon as I could to see how quickly I could get him back to prepare the the final attack. So I was actually worried he was just going to sit there and wait for the last minute. Um, luckily enough, he passed me on lap four to go and I knew I could get him back within two laps and, and then... I I had I could hold him off for two laps, but he couldn't hold me hold me off for two for as long. Um, so then I prepared an attack for lap one and a half to go, and uh, I knew that you know I was gonna probably hold on to the end. So it was all planned, but also pure instinct. Um, it was um, very very fun driving, very clean with Rossi. Um, he. He drove me aggressively, but super clean, super, super, super racy. And then he and his team, Andretti, did a great job. I think, you know, we both had great cars. We both had great engines. Obviously, I think Chevy gave us uh, all the power we needed. And, you know, we ended up uh, prevailing. Let's go to, I love this one, Dean Ackerman, who says, since you've adopted the alter ego of Jean Girard in the past, does your first Indy 500 win now make Alexander Rossi your Ricky Bobby? <laughs> we have to see. Ross, Rossi doesn't strike me as a Ricky Bobby, but uh, <laughs> he definitely doesn't strike me as a as that character. But uh, did you have a Ricky Bobby? I'm coming to get you moment in those final laps. Please, even no. if you didn't, just lie and say yes because it'd be the best thing ever. <laughs> I, I really didn't. Ah, thank you. Shame to say, but uh, I could say my legs were were getting a little light at the end there. I was uh, it was a little bit like being chased by the cops. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Uh, let's see. Heather Brown asks. Uh, hopefully, you were able to celebrate in a way that would make uh, Jules Gou proud, who was uh, the last Frenchman to win the D five hundred. I don't know if we were speaking to a hungover Simon Pagano, but were you able to celebrate at all, or is that? Uh, I mean, I know Detroit's coming here right away, but tell us you did something fun. No hangover. Um, no, no hangover. But, uh, you know, fun with my friends. <clears throat> Seb Baudet was in my trailer when I came back. That was awesome. Um, so we had a few uh, a few of Jimmy Vassar's wine, which is actually 
pretty awesome. Um, and then I went to uh, my team Penske celebration. We had a we had a nice time with uh, with uh, with everybody uh, at the bar last night and uh, uh, good times. Just um, just I needed to stay uh, conscious. Uh, I only had two hours of sleep, so I, I need to stay. I need to stay sober to be able to hang on to the next few days. I am picturing you with your ever-present uh, little cup of espresso right now. So, all right. Well, uh, let me get down to the last question or two here. Uh, our pal Andrew C says, Simon, did Norman the dog make it to Victory Lane with you? Uh, his pictures with you always bring a smile to his face. Fantastic job and congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, there's a great picture. It is of Norman uh, and me uh, celebrating. He's barking and he's just doing the same <laughs> face as I am. I hope that picture gets viral because that was just perfect. Yeah, that was the best. Uh, he's barking away. Yeah, this is kind of fun. Uh, let's see. Ed Berg says, Simon, what was it that you or your car had yesterday that maybe the re- rest of your team didn't? And I know that's a hard one to answer because you were driving their cars. But he also asks, and if you on the 22 team come across a little secret edge, do you feel obligated to share it with your other Penske teammates? Um, first of all, I think we had, you know, Chevy uh, had extremely, had done an extremely good job at preparing for the month of May. Uh, we had the horsepower on the top end, uh, and uh, it really, you know, powers you here at the Speedway powers everything so i do believe that they did a fantastic job i also want to say that you know the, the competition right now is phenomenal between chevy and honda and uh without those two manufacturers right now fighting for the <clears throat> for the wins like that we wouldn't have such great competition so um obviously i'm very thankful for for chevy but i'm also thankful for honda in the competition um and it was very equal um but we also had, I think, a, the best chassis yesterday. Um, just as you could see at the end, I could do whatever I wanted. I could be very aggressive when I needed to. I had the speed on the straightaway. I had the speed in the corners. I think it was the car to beat. There was nobody else like it. So um, just amazing to be the driver of it. Um, and then secondly, yes, I share everything with my teammates. There are no no hidden games. There's nothing you can hide these days with cameras and data. All the sensors we have on the cars, you just even if you move your thumb, uh, willpower would see it. So <laughs> can't lie, and it wouldn't be good for the team to lie because you would be an outcast, and that doesn't work at Team Penske. Let's go to our last question here from Zalgudo Sirkush, and I apologize if I've mangled your name. He says, of all the congratulating messages, which one is the most precious or the one that you're most proud of to have received? And also mention, I did see our uh, mutual friend Pierre Fion, head of the ACO in Victory Lane with you. And I'm like, wow, this is the best of France all in one place. But tell us about some of the, uh, don't give us anything you shouldn't, but what were some of those messages you might have received in the last 24 hours that made you say, wow? Man, I received, I'm up to 600 text messages and I haven't checked my emails yet. So Greg Penske was one of the first to uh, to call me and congratulate me. That was special. Rick Mears uh, also. Uh, Gilles Deferrin, um, obviously some tears there. Uh, that, that was very special. Uh, like I said, Seb was in the trailer uh, waiting for me to come back. And I thought, you know, obviously he's racing too, right? So uh, that was amazing that uh, he was with his whole family here. That was so cool. Uh, obviously my, my dad, my mom, 
um, my, all my friends. But, um, you know, obviously talking to the president of America was, despite any political opinion that uh, I wouldn't take part of, um, it is, you know, talking to the president of, of the United States is quite special on the phone. So that was, uh, that was a precious one. And, uh, my friend Richard Mill as well, uh, who is, um, who's a, a big, big, I mean, he's big for motorsport in, in general and he was here. Um, so, you know, being able to win with him here was, was very special. And I, I'm sure I forget so many messages, but, um, I've received countless messages with the best, uh, the kindest words and, um, you know, the paddock, you know, from all the paddock, from Ed Carpenter to Tony Canaan to Elio Castroneves, Dario Franchitti, Marino. I mean, uh, you know, and I forget Will Power, obviously, Joseph. It's, it's so great. So I, I, I can't thank everybody enough for, you know, I'm just always so surprised with the support I get. I'm glad you're feeling the love, the love that you deserve. I love the fact that you were able to speak with President Trump. I mean, as the son of folks who owned a grocery store in a small town in France, to think that here you are speaking to our president, having achieved the greatest result possible uh, in motor racing, uh, definitely in North America. I know that uh, hopefully it won't be too long, Simon, before we're talking about your overall victory at the 24 Hours of Le Mans at which point you might just faint and fall over. Um, but <laughs> congratulations, my friend. You deserve thank everything you, you've achieved. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for your support. You're always such a good friend and uh, always believed in me. Thank you. All right, my friend. Well, go uh, go handle the rest of your media duties, and uh, I look forward to seeing you here soon. All right. See, see you later. Thanks, Marshall. Ben uh, Bretzman, <laughs> tell me what it is like waking up as the winner of the Indianapolis 500? Uh, it's, well, first, there's not much sleep. But besides that, uh, it's it's great. Uh, still, just another check mark here. This is a big bucket list deal. Um, it's really cool. Uh, you know, personally and and for the team and for Simon and the whole deal, right? Like, um, you know, personally, it's... You know, I haven't won the law. I got to participate in the law, but haven't won that one. And Indy now we've been able to check that off and sports cars and Indy cars. And, you know, for Roger now, like 18th pole and 18th win, we kept those kind of in unison with each other, which was good. Um, yeah, it's awesome. It's a pretty good feeling. <laughs> Can we go ahead and confirm a Simon Pagano team Penske entry next year at Monaco? And also at Le Mans, just so, you know, look, you've got one done for the Triple Crown. I'm just saying, let's go ahead and announce the others. Let's get yeah, it done. I mean, on the current I, streak, I, I would be. <laughs> I'd put my odds on you guys. Yeah, yeah, no, it'd, uh, it'd be good. I think it'd be awesome. I don't, I don't know. We, that's actually a very good question on a side note of how, you know, how many race engineers have ever done that before? So. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and call RP. We'll see. Well, A, if he takes my call, we'll see if we can get that in motion. <laughs> So you're always incredibly kind with your time, Ben, uh, with with our listeners. It was great to have you on. I believe it was actually the final day at Indy episode we did and really gave us some good previews coming into the race about your boy and about things in general. So we're going to get to more of those awesome new questions that have come in. I did want to throw one of mine to start, though. I believe you and your brother, Eric Bretzman, are the first brothers to win 
Indy 500s. Again, as uh, the Bretzman family, we have Eric's victory in 2008 with Scott Dixon, and now you in 2019. What is that like? Uh, it's it's awesome, right? You just look back at it. You know, my my dad uh, did a lot of work um, when we were younger days. He was an old gearhead in the 60s and 70s, and um, he obviously put a lot of work and effort into us and go-karting and, you know, trying to go-kart and see if we were actually good enough to be a driver or not and learning we weren't and, and having us, you know, drive, but putting a lot of money and effort into basically teaching us about racing and cars. And, um, yeah, I think it's a super proud moment for him, right? Cause you know, now both his kids have Indy 500s and, you know, you know, it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool deal i think that's that's the thing i'm most excited about is just how happy uh happy pops is and uh yeah brothers saw him right after the race he was he was super excited so um yeah it was it's a good good deal i have no idea if that what you're saying is true but i'm just gonna go with it i think it's a great it's a great fact regardless if not we just (laughs) made up our own fact here Um, i like it (laughs) and i guess maybe piggybacking on that Although Eric was not directly assigned to be Alexander Rossi's race engineer, obviously that's the the great and crazy Jeremy Millis. Eric is technical director at Andretti Autosport, obviously played a very big hand in the overall performance of the team. Was there any extra joy or fun in knowing that the battle for victory at this year's Indy 500 was indeed uh, something that had heavy influence from both brothers trying to get there first? Yeah, no, for sure. It's, yeah, I've raced against him a lot now. Um, so it's always, you know, it's always fun to see. Um, it, it used to be, well, obviously, when he was Dixon's race engineer, it was really, really hard everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and, but now he's got his hands over all the, all the Andretti cars, right? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's special to watch, right? And it's, it's fun to be competitive, um, with him there. And it's a, it's a great arena to do it in, right? And, um, it's, yeah, it's always special just to know that, hey, your brother's out there and we're pushing each other as hard as we can, right? And, um, it's cool. That's, you know, it's one of those things you take pride in as a family in general, right? And, um, he's always going to be competitive. He's always has been and everything he's done in his career. So it's, yeah, unfortunately it's family that you got to beat. <laughs> Any second generation, uh, Bretzman's being warmed up here. I don't know, 15, 20 years down the road for race engineering. So we can resume this when you guys get old and retire. <laughs> Maybe I've got, uh, I've got a little one that, uh, she seems to be taking on racing pretty aggressively. So we'll see. Um, I love it. She, yeah. We'll see. You never know. <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, the questions we have for you, Ben. And I, I know I've mentioned this to uh, some of our other guests, but I wish you could just bask in your achievement. But no, you're getting ready for a Friday morning practice session at Detroit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, we're going to try and keep this as uh, efficient time-wise as possible, starting with Corey Showmaker, who says, Ben, with your car out front and dominant yesterday, you obviously don't have to make a lot of changes but you still have to adapt to the changing track. Can you tell us about some of the changes you made during the race to keep the number 22 Chevy out front? Yeah. That, uh, the good thing was in our situation, as like I said, we were, we ran out front so much. We didn't run in heavy, heavy traffic all the time, but so the car didn't change a ton as the track ripped up. 
um, we slowly, basically, in our case, we just slowly gained some understeer. So we we just hit a little bit of front wing and a little bit of uh, a little bit of tire pressure, um, kind of in the middle of the race. And beyond that, that was that was it. It was it was pretty good from the get go. Simon was working pretty hard in the in the cockpit with with his tools, with the with the roll bars and and the weight checker. So um, he kind of had a pretty good sense of what settings he would run um, when he was in traffic and what settings he would run out, out of traffic. So it was kind of my job just to kind of make sure I kept up with, um, just kept up with the track, like you're saying. So did, did we just start to slowly gain understeer as the track ripped up more and just kind of kept up with that. And he was, he was pretty happy the rest of the day. Knowing that you guys were not locked in crazy traffic for 200 laps and he was indeed running out front often a little bit comfortably, were the two of you able to have a ready dialogue back and forth about the cars that was changing over a stint, or was he rather quiet and saving that download once you got close to your pit window? Yeah, he was, he was relatively quiet. I mean, he, he does a very good job of, you know, when when something's starting to creep in um, from a balance perspective, letting us know, and then he does kind of will do like a rating scale or something of where the where the tires are at during a certain time of the stint and, you know, we're relaying him information on what lap of, a, you know, a certain stint you're on. So he can kind of judge, um, you know, if there's tire degradation on, on which corner of the car and what lap, you know, how do, how does he manage his tools to do that? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always pretty constant information, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible yesterday. So um, he was, he was relatively happy most of the day. Uh, so it's just mainly him managing the tools and in and out of traffic. And, and you could tell uh, about two thirds of the way through, we were, we were in a little bit of a tight fuel situation. So we, we let the two car go um, to basically, you know, follow right behind him and, and save a bunch of fuel behind him. And, um, you know, then he, he can obviously start reporting back to us, you know, well, how is the car in, in direct heavy traffic? And, um, you know, what do we need to do if we're, if we're anticipating, you know, a, a traffic run towards the end so um it's good to get that information uh at any point during the race him relaying you know how how is the car affected in traffic and is if he can't fix it with his tools what are we going to need to do so um it's it's always constant um as we can as especially during such a long race i didn't have time in my call that i just completed with simon to ask this but we did have a, a few indycar fans who were wondering Without that red flag at the end, how close would things have been in terms of making it to the end, not just with the fuel you had, but in a competitive standpoint? Because you could have circled around there at 100 miles an hour and made it, but that wasn't really the goal. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, if we didn't have the red flag, I think we would have made it. Um, I don't know if we could have been leading the whole time. Um, about... When we basically let, when we let Joseph go and then we let Rossi go, um, before, like right before the red flag came out there, um, you know, those were kind of on purpose letting them go. You could kind of see Simon just hold the car high against the wall and just trying to get them clear so he can have a, a good run behind them. Cause those were, those were basically moves to make sure we could get to the finish and not lose a lot of track position. Um, we were going to finish. We just couldn't lead the next, you know, 40, 30 laps, whatever it was, uh, um, we wouldn't have made it then. 
So it was going to be, you know, our minds, that red hadn't come out. We would have sat there and saved to the end and whatever little bits of fuel we got left, that's what we were going to use to attack with. So um, that's the only trouble of leading the race that much is you just burn so much more fuel than than the guys behind um, that it makes it difficult. Uh, It makes it very difficult, uh, you know, but in such a track position race, you also don't want to give the track position. So it was a, it was a very delicate game to play. Um, I think we, we would have made it and we just we were basically, could we save any behind those guys to, to give them, to give them a couple shots at the end of the race there to try to win it. So we discuss this next question sent in by Ed Joris during your, uh, day at Indy appearance, but I thought it might be interesting just to, uh, pose it again. It did come in as a new question for those who weren't able to, Hear your awesome explanation. Ed says, Ed says, last season, Simon seemed to be having issues with the new Universal Arrow kit. Is there anything Simon learned or suffered through last season that paid off Sunday when it seemed like he could do things his teammates could not? Yeah, I think his, yeah, I guess we talked about it a little bit on the, on the previous one, but like the big thing is his, his general aggressiveness is elevated now. Um, uh, yeah, and that's on road courses, street courses, and places like Indianapolis. It's um, he learned a lot last year that if he wasn't, even if he wasn't comfortable in the race, he still had to go earn his paycheck and he had to go forward. You know, then today we still finished sixth in the championship last year, and most of that was because him during the race was being he was being aggressive. He was passing cars. He was not letting you know, a poor qualifying result getting his way. And I think that was the case, you know, yesterday, like, like he, he wasn't going to let Rossi, you know, bully him around. <laughs> he was going to be aggressive. He was going to pass him when he needed to pass him and, and make the moves that he needed to make. Um, I think that was, that's the biggest thing we got out of last year is he's, he knows how to, he knows how to fight now, which is, which is a, a big added bonus. Also interesting with what you shared, on the day at Indy that this universal aero kit, and we're just talking in general terms, not just Indy 500 spec, but it's actually uh, what he had to deal with with the original DW12 and its spec bodywork. That was actually below the current downforce numbers and whatnot. So in terms of can Simon hang on to a car that isn't loaded, piled on with downforce, he was giving those answers back when the two of you were beaten up on folks with the uh, then little and unproven uh, Schmidt Motors uh, Schmidt Peterson Sam Schmidt Motorsports team. Uh, so yeah, we've definitely seen our boy Simon. Uh, he's a fairly versatile tool, or did I just call him a tool? I'm not sure what I just <laughs> did there, Ben. I might have just uh, said something very negative about our boy, but maybe share a little bit about that too. Again, for those who maybe didn't hear uh, your last visit, that. You know, this wasn't just a case of, oh, different arrow kit. Simon's no longer bathed in downforce. That's why he's struggling. There's some things you guys haven't wanted to put too fine of a point on, but uh, it wasn't just simply body work that led to some of those struggles last year. No, I mean, it's, it, it, I honestly don't think it was that at all. Um, yeah, this is a guy that loves driving rally cars and they have, minimal to no downforce and sideways all the time and and he drives ice cars and drives all sorts of fun things that have no downforce <laughs> and uh um yeah like i said like 
this car's making more downforce than DW12 was, and he had absolutely no problem with DW12. Um, and since then, the tires have evolved. We've got better tires, even. We've got more downforce than DW12. So, you know, it's, it's essentially easier than those days were. Um, it, um, a lot of it was, you know, you've got to get the driver a certain feel. Um, and it doesn't all just come from bodywork. Uh, it doesn't all come from, you know, how, how is this, how is this aero kit working? How's the aero map, um, look on this car? Um, it, you know, a lot of it was got to get him a sensation in the car that he wants to drive with it. And he's, he's so sensitive with the brake pedal and so sensitive with, um, how the car reacts to, to brake pressure. And, and we had to give him something to, to basically feel the car better. And I think we're, I think we're there on all fronts now. Um, it just took us a while to understand it really. So, um, some of it was some of that, some of those things you got to kind of remember, go back in history, right? Like when Simon showed up here at Penske, it was right when the aero kit days were starting the, the manufacturer aero kit days. And, um, a lot of things get masked, um, by all the downforce that we had in the aero kit days. And so he didn't, that, that feel that he was looking for didn't really matter when we had, you know, that much downforce as a formula one car. Um, it was just how brave could you be? How deep could you break? How brave could you be through the high speed corners? That, that's, you know, and now where you have to have finesse and you have to have feeling of the car to push yourself as a driver, that's, uh, that's where you got to kind of go to the next level. So we had to kind of just evolve some things, um, from where, you know, team Penske traditionally been. And, and I think we're, we're getting really, really close to it. <laughs> so let's close on this, Ben. So we're going into Detroit where Simon is a past winner. Simon loves street races. Simon loves road courses. Simon loves ovals. Um, <laughs> coming into this year, having read a lot of or heard a lot of the Simon washed up at Penske type stuff coming into this year, he told me, told Robin Miller, I'm sure he told a lot of reporters, David Malsher, Jim Aiello, told anybody that would listen, this year is going to be different. And it wasn't wishful in the way that he presented it, like, hey, good luck this year kind of thing. It was, this year is going to be different for me. Uh, I'm really in a very good place mentally. Uh, my approach, my you name it, I'm coming in this year, I'm feeling different I'm going to, you're going to see the old Pagano again. And while we didn't necessarily see that Ben right away, if we're talking just the cold, hard race results themselves, knowing nothing about how the races played out, none of the stories whatsoever, you look at the numbers and you go, all right, seven at St. Pete, not bad. Coda 19th, obviously not the best ninth at Barber six at long beach, etc. Didn't necessarily see the numbers match his words, but he remained unwavering from race to race. Hey, trust me. I wasn't lying in the beginning. This is going to be a different year for me. Can you share with us if, and what you saw within him that told you this has the potential to be an excellent year. If things do go our way, like they've just done during the month of May. 
Yeah, it's oh yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot, a lot of little things that basically point to, to Simon Pagiol never forgot how to drive. Um, when we were starting to hit on a couple things last year, you could you could see it like he was there, but he just didn't have the confidence, right? Um, you get beat down enough in anything in life, right? Like you, it's hard to push yourself to the level that you need to be at. But you could see there was glimpses of, of you know, Simon there last year when, when all things were going right. Um, and then, you know, we go to, you know, we do a bunch of other work, you know, whether it's, you know, driving simulators, you could see it there. Like he was immensely fast. Um, and then, we basically started seeing in the off season this year um, when we started to apply some of the, the rules and some of the things we wanted to do to help improve him. Um, all of a sudden last year when we would be, you know, beginning of the um, universal aero kit, we would be two to four to five tenths off our team cars um, at all the tests, whether it's road courses, um, street course testing at Sebring. And we go to our first test in Seawing and and all of a sudden he's right there with you know under under a tenth to will and right on top of everybody and you could see all of a sudden this you know you could see the glimmer of light in his eyes you I think that's probably when he started talking to you guys was because he knew right away that that uh it was there and and he was happy with his drive and he was happy with his performance and we go to the next test and again we're, we're quick and he's getting what he wants and and you know changes to the car are reacting the way they should be and and we're just starting to gain momentum then um it was always now coming back um now what was lacking at the start of the season was just that sheer confidence to win um he hadn't won in so long right and you kind of have to get yourself over the hump to do that. Uh, it wasn't, you know, wasn't definitely wasn't going to be a speed thing coming into the year. Um, the pit crew was good. He was plenty quick. You just have to get, you have to will yourself over the, over the finish line. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think he's there now. He's, he's right back to, you know, at least where we were in 2016, 2017, um, ready, ready to, ready to rip. So, um, it's just a growing thing. You know, you could see it in so many different spots. Um, he just, when he got into the car, he had to grow that confidence back now that he had the car that he wanted. Um, and it's been, it's been evolving the last, uh, last six months or so to where it's at now. Love the fact, Ben, that we're staring at someone who you have worked with for, what is it? 10 years now since 2009 yeah. or so. Yeah. Two of you have traveled, Rhodes earned championship in the American Le Mans series in uh, the LMP1 class, earned a championship in IndyCar, have added now an Indy 500 victory. You and this wacky Frenchman, you and uh, our boy Jean Girard, just really <laughs> cool to see what the two of you have earned, the faith that has remained between the two of you. Even if there has been a down year, uh, there's never been any question in your mind as to whether your boy can get back to that holy cow, this guy is about to do some serious damage type position he was in in 2016. And obviously Detroit, Texas, Road America, some other races are going to tell us, but I can say 
this is starting to feel a little reminiscent of either those ALMS days or his championship season where there was just that feeling like, wow, uh, there's something here that if it takes off like it might, this could be a really bad year for the rest of his competitors. So we'll see what the races uh, have to say ahead of us here, but it's really great to see Simon back in the place that he belongs. And also to know that the two of you who have become such close friends and so close added yet another amazing chapter to this. Uh, I mean, you've spent a lot of your career with this one wacky guy and it's just cool <laughs> to see you guys keep adding to it, my friend. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. I mean, he, he deserves it. I mean, he's worked so hard to get to where he is. And, you know, I, I keep telling the story of his first Indy 500, um, 2012. This was his first ever oval. Um, just kind of give you an idea of where we've grown from, right? He, I don't even remember. You'd have to look it up, but we started 20th or so. Um, and before we made it around to finish the first lap, we were last. <laughs> And it's one of those ones, speaking of Talladega Nights, it was one of those, you know, were those the other cars moments? <laughs> and and to think about that first race to where he is now, um, the evolution is just astonishing. I mean, it's he's, he's doing a really good job, and he's such a student of it, and um, he's grown himself leaps and bounds um just happy to be a part of it and help him along as much as i can so he's uh he's he deserves everything he's getting thanks as always my friend so happy for you wish i could have been there to celebrate it with you but uh i will admit to raising my fist and possibly shedding a tear too from the couch yesterday so just awesome 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 no, well, thank you so much yeah we, we missed you out here but yeah thanks uh thanks for having me again and anytime and um, we're going to somehow make it to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Santino Ferrucci, I am guessing you have woken up this Monday morning feeling like a rather happy young man after your first Indy 500 resulted in finishing seventh. Yeah, I'm still a little bit in shock, but, uh, no, it's pretty cool. Something that doesn't happen quite, uh, right every day you have a bunch of great questions that have been sent in for you before Uh-oh. i get to before i get to those let me ask one of my own we know mm-hmm. that making it to formula one was a huge part of your youth your goals everything that you were working towards where did the indy 500 fit in or did it fit in at all among your dreams and desires before you came here to race an IndyCar? I mean, as a kid, it's one of those races that you always want to compete in at one stage in your life. And even though the goal for most of my career was Formula One, to come back and race an IndyCar was actually refreshing, and I enjoyed it. And the fact that we got to qualify, race, and you know finish in the top 10 of your first 500 was just... Like, uh, it's just a fairy tale story for me. So, uh, I, I just can't believe it. Let's go to Vincent, our pal Vincent from Florida, who sends in a lot of great mm-hmm. questions. He says, Santino, in the past, you've talked about having a lack of support, maybe not a big support system, and maybe sometimes being overwhelmed or unprepared in some situations. 
He's asking, how has this year gone for you with the Dale Coin Racing Team? He also asks, how has your world changed since Dale Earnhardt Jr. gave you a big vote of confidence during the NBC broadcast? <laughs> no, I'm, uh, yeah, being in Europe, I mean, you're really on your own. When you come back here, I mean, you have people like Dale, the whole team, which is like a family and, you know, teammate like Sebastian which kind of just change how, how you look at everything and how you, how you present yourself. And uh, that's, you know, probably one of the, the biggest things, you know, it's more like racing with your family. And uh, it's not something that uh, I've done in a very, very long time and I enjoy it. And um, I was actually looking at some of my Twitter this morning and I realized that Dale was, <laughs> was commenting uh one of his comments was what a cool dude i was just like man if you think i'm cool that's pretty freaking special (laughs) so because i'd like to be i'd like to be you know you know you put him up there with guys like mario andretti and you know one of the greats of the sport so (laughs) i don't even know what to say to that one of my favorite parts of the broadcast too is the overall host mike tarico obviously does sunday night football does you know a lot of stick and ball stuff but a lot of football from Mike. He referred to you as Santonio once, and I'm guessing he was thinking Santonio Holmes, the uh, the great Pittsburgh Steeler wide receiver. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so if I call you Santonio from now on, at least you'll know the reason why. Uh, Vincent also asks, and this is cool. You you told me about this, but he says, "Tell me about your sponsor." He says it's a little outside the box of traditional auto racing sponsorships. How did your relationship with Clydell come about? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, the CEO of Clydell, Bob, um, just he loves motor racing. And I met him when I was just uh, starting my career over in cars in Europe at a local track of mine, Lime Rock. And he's just a really nice guy, a really lovely guy. And he's like another dad to me, basically. And he's just taking care of me and supported me through my career and basically made my dreams come through and i'm very fortunate because of him i was able to do a lot of the things that i'm able to do and um he was here this weekend and man he's he's a lot of fun he's he's too much fun to be honest with you so i'm 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 almost i'm too lucky to have him as a sponsor so he's he's such a great guy got a couple folks not asking questions so much but maybe making comments and maybe this could trigger some feedback from you one comes from my pal mish beer she says uh, will the team have to do another seat fitting to accommodate frucci's colossal cojones seriously though two of the most entertaining moments from the race came from this kid pure delight uh let's see we got another one here from joseph hall not a question just an observation for those who had a question about santino's ability kiss it goodbye the kid put on a hell of a show for us sitting in turn three great run kid Got a couple more comments like that. I don't know if you watched Oriel Servia's footage in car from last year at Indy or Rossi's in car from last year. I suspect mm-hmm. you might have because looking at some of the high line passes that you were pulling on people, uh, it was very reminiscent of those drivers. So for those who appreciated the show you put on, tell us how you came up with that. Well, I mean, a lot of that. You know, I did watch a lot of Rossi's onboards, and for me, not being an oval racer uh, by any means, having no background of it, a lot of that has to do with my spotters, uh, Pancho and his son. And uh, you know, they were 
you know, they kept me informed of kind of where to go. And Pasha was sitting there. He's like, go high, go high, go high. And I'm just like, uh, well, I got to trust them. <laughs> so I went, I went high and I was actually, I made a couple of really good moves. Uh, probably one of my favorites around the outside of Dixon. Cause I was, after I completed that one, I was like, oh man, I just passed our reigning championship winner. It's like, <laughs> that's pretty sweet. <laughs> I love the fact, and again, I'm just sharing this more as a fan than as a media professional, but I just love your passion and appreciation for what was happening around you, right? I mean, I think there's some folks who would have been so laser-focused, they would not have allowed the moments to land at the time. And I'm not saying you weren't laser-focused, just some prefer to filter out any of that stuff, and they're almost like machines. I appreciate the fact that you're there going, oh, that was Dixon. Cool. Got him. <laughs> he was hard to pass. It took me forever because I was just following him and following him. And it was just on the restart. He just took the inside and it got checked up enough. And I was like, all right, I'm going to put my foot in it and trust the high side. <laughs> so it was one of those really cool aha moments. And going racing Canaan out of the pits was so cool. That was crazy. I think did yeah. Kanan talk to you after the race because I wasn't sure if he was going to punch you or, or or shake your hand. I didn't see him after the race. I'll probably see him tonight. Oh, so the idea was he came out of the pits. He had a slightly quicker stop than us. Uh, and we're, as we're going down pit road, there's no one else down pit road, and we we're neck and neck. And I was like, I'm not lifting. I know he's not going to lift. So why not? You know, I was just kind of like, why not race him? You know, it's the Indy 500. You have to, you know, got to do something spectacular. And we both clicked the limiter off at the same time. And I guess the momentum of the outside, man, he tried to put me through the grass a little bit there. But uh, no, I think I held my own with him. And uh, we played chicken going into two on the uh, on the uh, warm-up lane. And um, he backed out of it. So it's either because he might have thought I was just absolutely batshit crazy or just didn't want to race too wide through the warm-up lane at 160, 70 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of grass, that wasn't your only visit. I don't know if IMS is sending you a bill or if they're going to hire you for lawn care, but it seems like at least in the turns three and four short shoot. um, Tell us about that because that was another thing where, again, I'm not saying you were 100% in control of what happened. There was obviously a lot of good fortune of cars not going in the direction you were going, but it was a big crash. Obviously, you've got your teammate Sebastian involved in it. Tell us about coming up on this, I guess, your first big Indianapolis crash and how you managed to weave your way through it. Yeah, I mean, we were as we were coming down the straight, I saw some dirt get kicked up before we are going into three. And I sort of lifted and started to put my foot on the brake because, you know, sometimes when you see dirt and you're going that speed, you're just kind of like, ah, you know, it might, you know, this might be a good time to lift. And then all of a sudden I started to see all the smoke and cars just spinning in front of me. And I was just like, uh, and the spotter goes in here, don't go high, don't go high. And Harvey checked up on the low lane where he was going really slow. So I kind of weaved my way through the middle. And everyone started to come down off the wall. And I was like, uh, if I don't hit the gas, they're going to hit me. So I floored it, got off the brake, floored it. And I just saw the grass in the warm-up lane. Was, no one was there yet. So I thought that was the best opportunity to uh, survive. And uh, no, I'm glad I 
I'm glad we uh, mowed the lawn a little bit. There is a picture of it somewhere on the internet. So it looks pretty good. I'd say it's a, it's a nice looking lawnmower. Most important question, how would you rate your race engineer Michael Cannon's grass setup at Indianapolis? Oh, it was a little understeery. Oh, see, so, I, I thought I saw you having to put a little bit more effort into the wheel. So definitely oh, that, not. Was, that was from the rear brakes. <laughs> oh, okay. There we go. Yeah. All that, that moment that someone watched that the moment just before I hit the grass, I lost the car. It was the moment just before I got back on the gas where I realized I couldn't stop anymore because the problem with the oval setup is when you hit the brakes and you lock the rears, the car just spins in because of the way the setups are. So that was the moment I was like, all right, we're off the brakes, we're on the gas. So and we went through the grass and uh, turned nicely, a little bit understeer onto the escape road, and then, uh, you know, I just kept footing it and fourth gear worked. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this is crazy. All right, let's go to our man, Richard Parsons. Richard says, Centino, since this was surely your biggest race to date, how did you deal with the nerves, if you had any, uh, in the build-up to the race? Was it distracting at all, going through driver introductions, etc., or was it just closing your visor and shutting out the world? I think that was the coolest part, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, I wasn't actually as nervous at this event as I had been at like the previous ones, mainly due to the fact that there was so many fans there and it was just cool. Like it was just cool to be at this event. It was cool to be racing at it. It was just cool to be there and to watch as well as drive. And, you know, you do the driver introductions in front of 300,000 something plus people live. And you're just like, just waving away. And you're just thinking, well, you know, kind of want to see what this looks like on the other side. And then uh, you get in the car and you go through, you know, you start with the parade lap at 3Y and you're just sitting there waving at people. Like, don't really, you normally do that at the end of a race. So, you know, I was pretty calm and relaxed. You know, you also got to think to yourself with all the nerves and everything going on, you also have to remind yourself this is also, even though it's the biggest race in the world, it's just another race. And that's what kind of keeps you somewhat sane going into the event. But you know it's not, so you kind of have to trick yourself a little bit. Let's go to Jim Johnstone, who says, Santino, congratulations on the performance. You looked really comfortable out there. says, considering it was your first oval and such a massive event, what stood out or surprised you both on track and off track during the entire experience? Man, off track, I got to say the fans, I've never seen anything like it. Like, you know, you have 300,000 people just roaring out here, and it's crazy to, you know, they look like they're falling on the track. It's, it's a weird, weird perspective when you go into turn one for the first time. And uh, on the track, it's amazing how the car balance shift just changes. Like, we were going through turn two, one lap, and I was really solid. And the wind literally flipped in that lap, and I went back into turn two the next lap. And I didn't even turn the steering wheel for turn two. The whole car just, I lost the whole car. I have no idea how I saved it. It's like, blows my mind. And just having things like that, that, you know, you're just like, ah, okay, back to driving at 85%. (laughs) And completely adjusting the tools. And, like, you have the the moment of you freak out in the car and Mike's on the engineer, or Mike engineering the car is rating to you to calm down and, just fix it and just keep driving. And you're just like, oh, okay. 
So it's like that. Th- those two things, I would say, for the on track and off track, are the most surprising. I'm going to stay with Jim's question here for a moment, Santino. <laughs> realize this is your first 500 so we can't talk about comparisons from year to year but one thing i know is looking at young drivers like yourself coming in since you haven't been part of say the road to indy for years where indycar fans at least might have seen your name a couple times had a feel for you kind of being on that road towards indianapolis what kind of reaction did you get did you feel from fans this month again who might not have known you too much uh, or may, maybe honestly might have seen your name and headlines from last summer and thought nothing but negative things just curious on the general reaction you might have gotten knowing you aren't coming in as a high profile rookie i think it's kind of cool because you somewhat fly under the radar and to the point you know where we finished the race yesterday and you know for about i'd say almost an hour i was just outside the garage relaxing signing autographs with everyone that had i didn't realize they had passes that you go in after post-race and i think that was really cool you know you get you spend so much time with the fans that you kind of forget everything that happened and they kind of see you for you you know not just a screen and what they read on the internet you know and that that's probably one of the biggest things and you know obviously there's been fans at the start of the year that you, you can tell know who you are and might not like you just yet and then you have the fans that actually meet you and want to take pictures and want to get to know you and i appreciate that and i appreciate everyone that came out to say hello and that came by the garage and i got to sign autographs for so i think that was a really cool really cool part i mean i've known you since you were like 11 or 12 and haven't liked you the entire time so i don't know what it's taken other people so long to actually find that out on their own but (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, all kidding aside, let's get down to the last couple of questions here. Uh, let's go to what do we go to our pal Jameen Tuttle, who says, Every year I watch the start in that three-wide dash into turn one. is one of the craziest racing moments of every Indy 500. Is there anything you did in practice or race prep that helped you to prepare for it? Or did you just floor it and hope that it all worked out once you got there? Great race on yeah. Sunday, and I enjoy having you in IndyCar, he says. Oh, that's awesome. No, I mean, it's, it's weird because I've never really gone three wide before. It was a new experience. The spotter called the green. I just put my foot in it and I had a slight, I had a better jump than, uh, Mateus next to me on the outside and me and Ryan went neck and neck into turn one. And I think I stick stuck it around the outside. You know, it's, it's strange when you go in there and there's all those cars in front of you because you're not quite sure what's going to happen. And it's it's different than every other race because normally you go into like a big break zone or, you know, or there's a couple of sequences of corners to where, you know, you have to get back into single file. And just to see everybody consistently going two, three wide all throughout the track and nobody's lifting, it's kind of like uh, you just got to keep finding the little gaps to, to put your nose to try and stay ahead. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you, if you've never done it, you just kind of wing it the first time and trust your spotters guide and go from there that's mildly insane but i love it all right let's go to let's go to daniel niece who says santino excellent work this whole month and you get two exclamation points on that uh entry there too as well so good on you Uh, after finally getting the full experience of an oval race and this is again this is your first oval man the 8500 he says what are your thoughts on them 
And did Elio's, quote, practice help you on race day? And that's referring back to uh, your visit on the podcast, talking about how Elio tried to school you a little bit on being a good neighbor, how and when to pass and not really adversely affect one another. So curious about your thoughts on getting your first oval done and whether you're looking forward to more and how Elio might have factored in and educating you. Yeah, I mean, the oval, if this is your introduction to oval racing, I can't say it was, it can't be any better than that. I mean, you get to rip through the field, pass, race with past champions, Dixon, Hunter Ray, and, uh, you know, you race with your other fellow rookies, Felix, uh, and uh, Marcus. And, you know, it was, it was a great time. And I was kind of wishing there was almost another race today, just because of the fact I had so much fun. And going back to working with, Elio on the practice it helped me pass hunter ray three times because hunter ray continued to block me and show me how it was done and he made me pass him around the outside every single time which was uh, immensely annoying (laughs) but it you know it helped me learn my timing better and to race cleaner and harder so i think that was really cool so I, i did get good use out of mine and Elio's little uh, practice session there. Let's close on one or two things. And you mentioned a couple of their names. You finished seventh mm-hmm. directly behind you. 2014, 8,500 winner, Ryan Hunter Ray behind him and in, in ninth, 2013, 8,500 winner, Tony Kanon directly in front of you, Ed Carpenter, three time pole sitter for the 500 in front of him in fifth, Will Power the defending Indy 500 winner. Head of him, 2017 IndyCar Series champion Joseph Newgarden. In front of him, 2017 Indy 500 winner Takuma Sato. In front of him, Alexander Rossi in second, 2016 Indy 500 winner. And in front of him, Simon Pagino, 2016 Series champion, and also now Indy 500 winner. He didn't finish seventh around a bunch of bums. Uh, those are some pretty big names and I'm not trying to blow your head up here, but you know, the reality is there are some years where the top rookie finishes, whatever, 13th in there in and around a bunch of drivers where you go, okay, good. Not scary. Just about everybody I mentioned is either an Indy 500 winner recently or a series champion or just always in the mix with Ed Carpenter for the win. Tell me about that. That has to quantify your, I guess, pleasure or just the takeaway for you somewhat knowing who you finished seventh against. That's pretty insane. I actually, I, I knew that, you know, we had some pretty big names around and racing, you know, cause I was the whole race around Hunter Ray and I, I like, I didn't realize it was that steep <laughs> until he just said it. So that's, that's pretty sick. I, I had no idea. That's like, that's really cool. I mean, racing those guys is really, you know, the last restart, though, I'm not going to lie, I got absolutely schooled by you did. Hunter Ray and Power. Like, well, I mean, schooled. I mean, they went by at 230 miles an hour on the front straight, and I was still in freaking third gear shifting schooled. So, I mean, it, it goes to show you the, those guys, the, they definitely have a couple of tricks up their sleeve that they save for the end of the race that, as a rookie, I wish I had known better. <laughs> But at the end of the day, I can't I can't complain. You're racing those guys for for top ten finish, top five even, and uh, that's that's pretty sweet. I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. 
Let's close on something a little more serious, but be interesting to get your thoughts. When we spoke after you came home from Europe, coming out of the Silverstone weekend, man, that that's about as low of a low point that a young athlete like yourself, I believe, can fall. Uh, you admitted to mistakes you made. You obviously pushed back on some others that you said weren't accurate. Nonetheless, coming home, your name was not one that was covered in glory, if anything, Seemed like a lot of folks, especially uh, internet social justice warriors, were absolutely determined to shut you down altogether. Give us some thoughts, Santino, on where you were then, where you are today, and I don't know if you could have imagined you'd be in as positive a place today professionally, but maybe also personally as well. Share if you could as we close on this pretty crazy journey for a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old in, uh, but what about a nine month span? Yeah. I mean, you, you, I go back and I look at that and you just go, wow, you know, the, you know, it feels like you're in stuck in depression and it's just so hard. And you, I just can't believe, you know, I take every day, you know, as it's last. And now it's, you know, I'm so happy that I have the people that I do around me. I'm happy that Dale is there. I'm happy that Seb's there. My family, you know, I'm just my sponsors and all those people that suck, you know, stuck their necks out and, you know, stayed with me through all of that. And, you know, looking back at it, it's almost like a point in your career where you just shift paths so much that I'm, you know, obviously it's not any, by any means, I would never want to put anyone through what I went through because it's just not normal. And, uh, but to be where I am today, I'm happy that what happened did to put me on this career path, to put me with Dale, to put me with Seb and to put me here in the 500. And I'm just happy where I am today. And I'm thankful for that. Everything that has come and, uh, has been given to me and the opportunities that I've gotten. So, you know, it's just, it's wild. Life is crazy. And uh, I feel like I've matured and I've, I'm a completely different person than what I was. And, you know, it's just, it's insane to think that that was not so long ago and to how much the people around you can change you and make you a better person. Happy for you, Santino. Again, having met you a long time ago when, I believe your hair was taller than you were physically. Uh, possible. Very possible. <laughs> happy for you, and also just happy to see you forget the sporting side just as a young man, learning, making mistakes, trying to grow from them. You put those two things together. Uh, I think that's why some who know you or are fortunate to have known you, just happy to see this result here and hopefully see this continue to be a springboard towards more positivity and growth in your life and career. Thank you. So I, I hope so as well. You know, it's nice to walk away from the 500 the way we did. And I think Mike's trying to retire the car already. <laughs> Go figure. He was talking about it today. He's like, I'm trying to get Dale's approval to retire this car right now. I'm just like, Mike, it's a race car. <laughs> He's like, I know. 
but it's a good one. It's He's like, old and Canadian and a little bit insane. So as long as he doesn't retire himself with the car, I'm happy. Yes, that is a very good point. All right, my man. Well, I know that you uh, rang in here after doing the highly glamorous thing of emptying the uh, gray water and poop tank in your uh, motor coach that you've been in for the weekend. You need to get prepared for the banquet and all kinds of other glamorous stuff. So thanks as always for taking some time for our fans and listeners here of IndyCar. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks, Marshall. I'll see you soon. All right. Let's get started with the questions you have sent in for me. Going to begin here all on Twitter. I'm going to go with Mike Stoops, who says, Just want to give a shout-out to Pippa Man and the Clawson Marshall team for putting in a great drive, brand-new team, finished on the lead lap, and beat out the likes of Scott Dixon and Elio Castroneves. Absolutely great point, Mike. Um, just as a little meaningless sidebar, probably because it is Memorial Day. I don't have Tim Clawson's phone number, but did reach out to uh, their really awesome PR rep, Monica Hilton, who's a friend of mine, and asked her uh, or told her that I'd love to connect with Tim and have him on the show here. Uh, He was on one of our day at Indies and just, um, yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful man. Um, with everything he's been through, but everything he's trying to do to celebrate his son's life and encourage uh, organ donation. Um, So I was hoping to have Tim uh, on the show here, Mike, to talk about this very thing and just think that, um, yeah, the timing was off a little bit. So hopefully I'll hear back uh, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it might be. Um, And I would, you know, maybe I can have him on next week's show. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I just love seeing what they did and knowing that there were a number of uh, underdog teams that made the Indy 500, the Dragon Speeds, uh, even the Hunkos Racings. It's been around for a little while, but again, you guys know their story of, of the sponsors being lost and having to claw back in. But um, just knowing the story of a couple of these smaller teams, I thought it was particularly awesome, Mike to see that what the uh, the Kloss and Marshall Racing team did on their Indy 500 debut. They were indeed the, uh, the top finishers among those uh, brand new small minnows coming in. Um, I haven't honestly had a chance to take a look at, uh, at their lap chart. Uh, I know that finishing... 16th overall ahead of Dixie, ahead of uh, Elio. It's a pretty big deal. Um, I don't honestly know. It's just my ignorance as to whether they did a lot of passing to get there or whether it was just being smart, just uh, effectively uh, keeping their wits together, not doing anything silly, and being smart to capitalize on the errors of others. Uh, that can, I mean, that's also a really valuable thing. So I don't know. I've yet to take the time to deconstruct how they got to 16th, but the fact that they did get to 16th and were ahead of a couple of Indy 500 winners and champions who were running at the finish and also did this on their debut, knowing that some other smaller teams uh, that maybe earned more recognition throughout the month um, finished behind them 
yeah, uh, that to me is pretty darn cool. I also hope, which if I can find some time with Tim Clawson, I do hope to find out if, if and what this Indy 500 performance might mean for them in the future. Meaning, uh, will we a see you again next year at the 500, but could we see you at other races? Cause I would certainly love that would to me would be the ultimate ultimate outcome uh, for that little program. Uh, Let's see, where should we go next? All right, John Sable. Thank you, John, for always sending in some very uh, thoughtful content. He said, hey, can we talk about the management of races? Uh, Since last year, the caution periods have been exceptionally long, and that came to a head on Sunday. I'm failing to understand why. It all made IndyCar look very bad, was extremely frustrating to watch. So I'm going to pull in a couple questions that were also sent in on Facebook. Um, one from Ken Rocher, one from Peter Peel as well. Uh, and also Courtney Hirata, Hirota, I apologize, who asked similar things. Um, after the red flag, during the yellow flag, uh, they had all the cars that weren't on the lead lap go through pit lane. Uh, couldn't they have just rearranged the cars during the red flag and the pit saving uh, some of the yellow flag laps for green racing. Uh, Peter Peel says after the red flag, why did it take six laps to sort out the field? At one point, uh, Townsend Bell and Paul Tracy said they were going to take an additional lap to move the cars to the back, but it took two more laps. What was going on on the other four laps? Uh, and Courtney adds exactly. We're sitting right across from Connor Daly's pit. It took a good 10 minutes before they started shuffling cars around, and even then they only got to half of them before they restarted, and then five laps of caution was frustrating, especially in such a close race. Don't get me wrong, still a really exciting finish, and I loved it, but the whole red flag process seemed a bit disorganized. I would love to hear your take. Situations like this, when possible, I love to reach out and uh, get direct input and thank Kyle Novak, IndyCar race director for fielding uh, these questions that you sent in. Uh, I sent them over to him today and he got back to me tonight. So uh, this is working out perfectly. I had the same kind of thoughts uh, that were sent in. I wasn't there. I was having to just watch the race at home. Uh, So to me as well, it seemed like things were dragging on for a while. So wanting to gain more insights, uh, sent these over to Kyle Here's what he sent back. It's fairly long, but again, I, I mean, good Lord, uh, IndyCar's race director is, is taking time to help answer your questions directly here on the weekend IndyCar. So uh, big respect to Kyle. He said, here's some thoughts on the process. Every yellow presents race control with a unique set of challenges. Our biggest priority is the safety and recovery of drivers involved in an accident. But we also have to manage competition procedures such as getting the race running order correct, connecting the leader with the pace car, opening the pits, managing the blend line, conducting the wave by, driving lapped car to the pits, and getting the field ready for the restart, just to name a few. Each one of those steps features its own subset of procedures and specific cadence for which any delay outside IndyCar's control could add some laps. He says, secondarily to the safety of the driver's, are always looking to get the race back to green as quickly as possible. He says, in the case of that last yellow on Sunday, the debris field and fluid left on the racetrack was so vast that had we stayed yellow, 
we would not have been able to resume the race under a green condition. He said, we made the decision to go red and bring the field back to pit lane as quickly as possible to give our safety team ample time to clean the incident, leaving our pit procedures for when we resume the race under the yellow condition. He says, the reorder procedure that is normally completed on the racetrack under yellow condition prior to opening the pits was completed in the pit lane by IndyCar officials with quick jacks, a less than ideal scenario, yet still effective. He says the reason why we can't reorder the lap down cars during the red is that we would then cost them uh, the chance to get their lap back via the wave by that takes place after the pits are open. That's a really good point. He says we couldn't open the pits the first time by after the red because crew members tending to their cars during the red would not have made it back to their pit boxes in time to conduct those pit stops. Says finally, going back to the safety point, we had to be cognizant of the large quantity of oil dry put down for the incident and running the cars through the remaining residue during the yellow is the best way to clean the surface for the restart. A lot of really good points there. Um, as explained by Kyle and and I'm telling you this at 10 something PM, um, seems to line up with things that make sense to me. So if any of what I just read from Kyle in answering your questions does not align or doesn't jive, uh, shoot me another note here on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and I'll do my best to either follow up, uh, on my own or see if Kyle has any follow ups. But, um, that explains a lot for me and just share this part too. When it comes to this kind of race officiating, this aspect of race officiating, not the, do I make the judgment call on whether to penalize this person for doing something, but actual crash, big crash as it was multiple cars strewn high, low warm up lane where you name it. Um, there are some instances where I think we collectively, I do this as well, say, oh, come on, man. You know, you can fudge things a little bit. Just get on with the thing. Uh, I'm good with IndyCar trying to stick with its procedures to not do some of this stuff kind of seat of the pants. Or I think some of the other things you could maybe do that a little bit with, like I said, was it a block? Wasn't it a block? Um, you know some of these things to me are a little bit subjective. If you have hard written rules on how everything that Kyle laid out is managed and there's a rule book and there are procedures to follow. And as he mentioned, the cadence of this happens and that triggers this, then we do that. And all this leads up to us going back to green. Um, I'm okay with, again, as he's laid out everything, I'm okay with them sticking to, the way things are meant to go instead of just kind of freewheeling things a little bit. As he mentioned, the, uh, the crews, for example, you know, as someone who walks up and down pit lane a lot every day at Indy, if you're towards the front half of the grid with your car and you've got the electric starter and you've got whatever else with you, it's not a short jog to get back to your pit box, then get ready to perform a pit stop. So again, some of these things where you go, come on, man, where did that extra lap here or extra lap there come from? 
Um, this explains a lot for me. So uh, not saying you you agree with me, just saying that uh, this actually, I'm, after reading all this from Kyle, at least I'm, I'm good, uh, if that means anything at all. Uh, let's see, where shall we go next in our list of Twitter questions? Jenny from HBG mentioned something that I thought as well. <laughs> and she, Jeremy, not Jenny. Good Lord. I'm sorry, Jeremy. Guys, I'm just sorry in general. This is probably going to be the suckiest episode ever. Jeremy says, I wish Robin was on the broadcast. Um, not being there, I was utterly shocked and surprised to not hear Robin's voice on the NBC broadcast. Don't know why he wasn't, but uh, there you go. Uh, so I'm with you, Jeremy. I have no answer there. Actually, I haven't spoken with Robin uh, since the race, but uh, need to catch up with him here as well and see how he is doing. Uh, let's see. Where else? What else do we have from Twitter before we would move over to good old book face? Um, D. Waberis. I love the variety of names, screen names we get asks, did Rossi make his move too soon? I had that thought as well. If we're talking the last couple of laps, um, knowing how the race had played out, knowing how the month had played out. Uh, if you'd watched any of the hamburger and French fry shows that I did with Sebastian Bourdais, Seb laid out in pretty clear detail, uh, just almost right away in practice talking about doing, uh, any race running, running in toes that the first, you know, the first and second cars running together could pass one another. But after that, it was a bit hard. And so knowing that it really was going to be either Alexander Rossi or Simon Pagano who were going to get through, I mean, Takuma Sato was there, thereabouts, but again, just based on what we'd seen on the day and also throughout practice, hadn't really seen the guy in third go blasting to the front. So it really did look like it was Alex or Simon. I did kind of have that thought. And I don't think, I mean, Alexander didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I I would have done the same thing, but uh, there was a part of me that said, huh, should this be something where if you can, if, if you're able to, should a lap 199, coming to the checkered or maybe I'm off of my numbers lap 200. Should this be something where you're really trying to time that pass that it looks like you can make, uh, until the last lap, because anything more than that and Simon might have the ability to get you back. So again, I don't think Alexander did anything wrong. I just think that, yeah, there's a little bit of a, a cadence to that as well. And it seemed to play out in Simon's favor, uh, to get him back. All right, let's go ahead and shift over to the good old book face. Y'all sent in a whole bunch of good and fun stuff here. So I'm going to ramp down as quickly as I can here. Uh, Moving over to the questions for me on good old Facebook. And wow, there's a lot. Okay, where shall we go? Uh, Let's start off with... Peter Santi, who says, what happened to Marco Andretti at the start that caused him to be off the pace? 
Also, what are your thoughts on the performance of the rookie class this year? I was quite impressed with Marcus Erickson for the first half of the race. And then you also say, wishing all the best for me and my wife. Thank you, Peter. I don't honestly know uh, about Marco. Someone else asked me that, and I just, I need to apologize here. I really have not had the time to do my usual deep dive into everything about the race. Uh, and I don't know if I will. Uh, so I don't know uh, about what happened with Marco early on. It just looked like things went bad early and only got worse. Uh, that was a surprise. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was hoping to have the mental bandwidth and also the time to write a pre-race primer. Uh, I don't know, go up Friday or Saturday. I just didn't have the time. But one of those items, which would have made me look like an even bigger ass, was, hey, Marco's been a little quiet this month. Um, I have a feeling there might be something really good coming on race day. So, uh, eh, uh, as someone who never struggles to make himself look like an ass, um, I guess I'm glad I didn't put that one together. Yeah, you had a miserable event. Uh, if we're just talking expectations, celebrations, his day glow car celebrating his grandfather's 69 winner. It was gorgeous. Uh, I know that if he were to carry that on to other races, it would lose the historical tie-in going to Texas or Toronto or wherever, but the car was so beautiful. Um, so big part of me that believes, you know, since the whole tribute was done to try and honor Mario, not just with a pretty looking car, but with a result that was befitting of the 1969 Yeah. There's a part of me that would love to see that livery stay on. Um, hoping that he's able to do that at an event this year. And maybe if he does have a win at name, whatever track, maybe then they can change it afterwards. So at least that's, how my mind is working here. Uh, let's see. Uh, as for the uh, rookie class, Peter. Yeah. So Santino, who, uh, I hope you enjoyed his, uh, his visit here. That kid just looked really locked in. I also said the same thing about Marcus. He made that mistake entering pit lane, which looked basic and rookie. I mean, it was a rookie mistake, but we also saw a lot of other veterans get locked up, not crash like he did, but, you know, there were a lot of folks teetering on, on that. And, you know, uh, an extra half mile an hour might've been tipped into that. So yeah, that, that, that disappointed me, not disappointed in Marcus, but the disappointment knowing that this was really looking like a, a breakthrough event for Marcus. And I just was surprised when I looked before we started recording. Marcus is dead last in points among the drivers who have completed every round. I say every round because with Max Chilton failing to qualify, um, there's now that exception. But yeah, Marcus is dead last uh, among those who have completed all six races. And finishing 23rd at a double points race like India is certainly going to help uh, move you towards the bottom. This is, it's been weird. Um, everybody that I know that knows Marcus and has covered him for years in Formula One or coming up the ladder has all said, this guy's really good. Don't know if any of them have said, and Scott Dixon better watch out. 
and Joseph Newgarden, Alexander Rossi, so on and so forth, better watch out. But this guy is so much better than any of the results in F1 with a, a lower tier team might suggest. And I don't doubt anything that they've said. I, I just don't know if Marcus has found that comfort zone visiting a bunch of tracks for the first time and I guess barring circuit of the Americas so far, but yeah, there's just been something a little bit not connecting and you know, it's the, it just struck me right now that there's a little bit of Takuma Sato esque aspect to it. And honestly, we really know, I really no longer associate it with Takuma anymore, but there was this thing for years and years. One of the reasons why I really liked Takuma as a person didn't have a whole lot of positive things to say about him as an IndyCar driver, because for the first kind of what, six, seven years, however many, the guy just kept making boneheaded mistakes or would be in a great position and just do something to unwind it for no particular reason. It's not as if he did them on purpose, but there was just a little short circuit that would pop up over and over and over again. And we couldn't necessarily put it together and explain why I'm not saying Marcus has that same thing, but there is a little bit of that same thing where you go, huh? Okay. Um, that just spinning out on your own coming onto the front straight at the Indy grand Prix and smacking the wall and finishing last. Uh, I figured you were going to be factoring. I figured you were going to be towards the front showing us your, you know, extreme road racing skills on a billiard smooth track, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But okay, I guess first out and last. All right. Um, just a couple things like that where again, no, he's a rookie. Know that there's uh, a lot of reasons we can add to things, but yeah. Um, coming back to, uh, to close this one would just say that I was bummed about the crash uh, on pit lane at Indy because I really did think that he was showing, wow. All right. Something has clicked. Uh, this guy is really, he was going to be, I think the most impressive rookie, uh, in the 500 until that happened. And yeah, I hope it does not cause some sort of cascading effect where he has more problems and uh, the rest of the season only uh, spirals downward because he's a really cool guy, just like a cool cat. Like if you haven't met him, just if you get a chance, I think you'd really enjoy him. So a good person in terms of just quality and character of human being. And then I think he's also a pretty darn good race car driver just have not seen the best of it from start to finish. Um, probably also expecting a little bit more from him than maybe I should as a rookie racing for the first time uh, for a full season in America, going to tracks he's never been to by and large every single time, plus learning oval racing. So I'm probably probably not calibrated to the degree that I should here. So uh disregard a lot of what I just said. Uh, let's see. 
let's go to, 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 to where are we going to go next? Let's go to Howard Bennett. Howard, you asked something that is similar uh, to one of the questions off Twitter, but there's another interesting aspect to it. He said, hey, Marshall, is it me or did the superb achievements of Pippa Man and the Clawson Marshall Racing Team go largely unnoticed by the media? Certainly on the IMS Radio Network commentary, she got absolutely no mentions or praise during qualifying and likewise during the race. I thought it was a Herculean effort, the smallest team, a one-off entry, and shock horror, a woman driver even, finishing just 12.9 seconds behind the winner. But yet, it's like there was a media blackout for this entry? Question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. Yeah. All right, Howard. So I'm not questioning anything you just wrote. Uh, I just need to add the proviso that not taking a, the short, easy road here, but I have not been able to do uh, my full paying attention to everything that I try and do. So I didn't listen to the IMS Radio Network during the race or qualifying, and that's no disrespect to them while I was there. Uh, I was on pit lane during qualifying, so didn't have anything in my ear to hear them. Uh, and then during the race, I would just straight up watched NBC. So um, I can't say yay or nay on what you've mentioned about what they did or didn't say about Pippa. Not questioning you, uh, just saying I can't offer any. Uh, yeah, I agree or I disagree. I don't know. Completely agree that I believe more folks in the media should have noticed or cared about the Clawson Marshall Racing Team. I also, like what was or was not said on the IMS Radio Network, cannot tell you what other sites have or have not written, and you might have just heard Rocky meow, um, may or may not have written about the Clawson Marshall Team after qualifying or after the race. I can tell you that Sebastian Bourdais and I made a point in one of our hamburger and french fry videos, end of day videos, to express our extreme uh, praise for the team and all that they achieved and know that I wrote a story uh, after qualifying, after interviewing Pippa to do exactly what you mentioned, um, notice them, acknowledge them, praise them and say how amazing it was to see what this little team from USAC did. Add these two things here, which is why I loved your question. And this is just me being honester and honester, as I use a word that doesn't exist. So part of being a reporter uh, is trying to cover all aspects and all angles as Rocky has jumped up on the desk and is now trying to paw at something above my row on the bookshelf of Indy 500 reviews. And now he's grooming himself on the back of the microphone. Thanks buddy. Um, look, man, <laughs> a lot of folks in the media are really freaking lazy. A lot of them suck, just suck. And I'm not referring to the full-timers. I'm not talking about the David Mousers, Jim Aiello's, Bruce Martins. Run down the line. Those that you likely read, pick the outlets. Motorsport, Autosport, IndyStar, Auto Week. Uh, the folks who are dug in covering the sport on a daily basis or weekly basis, um, I may not 
I have relationships with some, don't with others, don't care. That's immaterial. For those who are here covering the sport, um, huge thumbs up. I can't say, as I mentioned, whether they did or didn't write about Pippa or the team because I just haven't looked. I kind of normally don't, um, but regardless. A lot of the other folks who show up for race week, a lot of the folks who are credentialed, couldn't tell you who they are. Couldn't tell you what their audience is. Couldn't tell you what they do. I can tell you that in many instances, uh, the minute they smell the kitchen is got lunch ready in the third floor of the media center, make a freaking stampede from the fourth floor down to fill their bellies and drink all the free soda that they can. And if there is a free something to go to or a dinner being held or some sort of uh, press conference where they can just have everything spoon-fed to them, do the minimum amount of work, or worst of all, cut-and-paste press releases, and their site is effectively cutting and pasting press releases. Those are the folks, honestly, Howard, and this is just me, honestly, maybe being a dick, but I'm just being totally honest. Um, If we're just talking the Indy 500, I have no idea who most of those people are and what they do. I don't see their work. It's not something I hear folks talk about or reference. I don't know why they're there other than they could get a credential and they seem to consume and take as much as they can. I would think in those instances with a lot of those folks who, because they probably don't do this full time or maybe have some small something or other can't really connect with, Hey, could I have 15 minutes with Ryan Hunter Ray, Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon, Tony Kanon, some of the bigger names. Those are the harder ones to get, right? Everyone wants their time. So if you are with a smaller outlet, you are, don't really do this full time coming in for race week or whatever it is. Howard, the ones that are the easiest to connect with are the smaller teams that have no, you know, by and large, no one really paying attention. So in reading your note here, the thing that bums me out, again, I'm using your vision of things as a guide. The thing that bums me out is in theory, most people should have been able to get time with Pippa or Tim Clausen or Richard Marshall or you name it. Because those tend to be the folks that have the most amount of availability for those who can't get a hold of the bigger stars. Hey, can I have 10 minutes with Elio? No, you can't. Uh, We had his proverbial appointment book filled up three weeks ago. Uh, Okay, got it. So you go find a Pippa, maybe a James Davison, maybe a Sage Karam. None of those, again, this is not a judgment thing that they're easier to find, get time with, therefore they're lesser. Not at all, just profile-wise. You know that it's going to be a little easier to get time with them. If all of these folks that I we see flood in and consume everything in sight, take home every knick-knack, you name it, uh, are not out saying, hey, boy, yeah, this, this Pippa man and this brand-new USAC team making the show when McLaren didn't and then running 16th. Um, yeah, boy, 
Uh, I really can't answer why, Howard. Those folks would not have. Come back to the full-time media. I can tell you that, you know, as I mentioned in the earlier question, I'm hoping to have Tim Clawson on here because I respect the hell out of him and I want to hear more. Because as you know, I wasn't able to be there for the race. Uh, but you know, Pippa is very popular among her fan base. IndyCar doesn't have a huge fan base, but for those who are passionate, Pippa is often one of their favorites. I'd say that she might have some some nation building to do, some bridge building to do with some of the full-time media. Um, you could either put that on the media by saying, well, you should be completely impartial. Can't disagree with that. Just keep in mind that with 33 drivers in the race, lots of team owners, lots of run down the list, strategists, spotters, mechanics, whomever to speak with. It's a lot of options. And, you know, Pippa's maybe not always done the best of ingratiating herself or being someone that really folks within the paddock or even the media are really wanting to be there to support. So I don't know if that is a criticism of her or if that's more criticism of folks who have not been uh, super supportive of her. I can tell you that my hashtag me personally uh, view has wavered up and down over the years. Um, regardless of whether I like Pippa man as a person or believe she is a good and decent human being or not. Uh, the fact is given an option to interview her on qualifying day, because that's something that IndyCar's media will come up to you when they come down the, uh, in the bullpen there, each driver that comes in, they will, walk up to the rest of the media and say, hey, do you need Mateus Laced? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? And uh, that way they know where to send the person to stop and talk or go straight into the media center to speak after their qualifying run. Um, I said no to probably half. And just because I had nothing, didn't need to do a story on them. Hey, you qualified 23rd and okay, cool. Um Pippa for sure wanted to speak with. And again, whether I like her, dislike her, doesn't really matter. At least as I saw it, she was someone to interview. And this is before what we'd gotten through and to the, uh, uh, the fast 30 or the top 30 or whatever we should call it. Uh, before we got to find out the six drivers that would have to, uh, go through the last chance qualifying the next day. But regardless, at least for where I saw her qualify and thought she would be able to transfer through, it looked to me like something pretty amazing was going to happen and said, yeah, would absolutely love. Please have Pippa stop here. And she did and offered some great quotes, showered tons of praise on her team and her sponsor and did an just perfect job of giving me great material to write a story to celebrate uh, what that team achieved in qualifying. There you go. Um, I don't know what others did or did not write, so I hope others did uh, among the full-time media. If they didn't, then that's either a conviction of them 
or a conviction of her or possibly just a lack of familiarity with the team and knowing who to talk to or feeling like there was maybe those who didn't just said, eh, all right, you know, cool, but not as cool as Kyle Kaiser and Hunkos racing, knocking out McLaren. Uh, again, I can't speak for the others as for the rest who probably been too harsh on, but again, I'm just being honest with you that show up and we have no idea what they do, who they're there for. And we don't know their names. We don't see their work. We assume they do work, uh, but we can't exactly say the ones who should have <laughs> had a really easy time and green light to get all the Kloss and Marshall racing material they wanted and blow them up after qualifying and the race, you know, uh, when the, when that stuff is served to you on a plate as well and you don't pick it up. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. So anyways, uh, a little bit of inside baseball stuff there, Howard, and hopefully I didn't just bore you to death with that. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Dean Ackerman who says one Dale Earnhardt Jr. seems like a lovely person, but he never raced an Indy car and never drove an open wheel car at IMS. So why is he part of the Indy 500 telecast? The ex Hendrick crew member, uh, I'm sorry, crew chief, uh, also has a stock car only resume. Uh, would NASCAR fans be pleased if NBC sent a bunch of their IndyCar broadcast team to the Daytona 500? Uh, let's see. I'll, you got a couple questions here. I'll stick with that one uh, to start. I really liked Dale Jr.'s inclusion, Dean, and I don't know him. So it, it's not a like, hey, he's my guy. I don't know him at all. Uh, was actually hoping just to meet him, just to say, hey, man, um, I respect what you do. Um, I liked his inclusion because I thought he brought an excellent fish out of water, wide eyed. I've been here to the Brickyard 400, you know, 15, however many times, two dozen times. He's been to the Brickyard 400 countless times, been to Indy countless times, never been there for the 500, never seen what the place is really like with big crowds, enthusiastic crowds and the cars that are really, you know, meant to be there i love that aspect so his honesty in saying whoa this i (laughs) almost speechless at times i thought that was really cool no it was coming from dale jr who for talking titans of the sport and popularity um his success you know that was a really great cosign also love the fact that he fell in love with santino ferrucci Love the fact, as I mentioned, with Santino that uh, Mike Tirico called him Santonio. Um, there are also some folks who mentioned that they referred to the race as the Daytona 500. Uh, you know, again, um, we also have IndyCar experts during every broadcast say things like the front nose. So, you know... <laughs> I would rather have Tarico or Earnhardt Jr. mistakenly say the Daytona 500 than someone refer to the front nose on the car uh, and then just me slap myself in the face for the umpteenth time and say, could you please show me the rear nose if you feel the need to call out the front nose? But again, you know, that's my little peculiarity here. Um, I loved having Dale Jr. there, and I think, provided they bring him back next year, um, I don't know if I need him up 
on the primary uh, booth or whatever you want to call it, hosting rig that they got there. Um, I think he might be a really fun addition to the call it permanent broadcast team. Uh, our boy Diffie, so happy for him, truly, just as a friend. Uh, knowing that this this Australian kid, this Austra- guy who came here from Australia, who's become an American citizen, loves America. Uh, he has called the 24 Hours of Le Mans as, uh, as, I believe, primary host, now the Indy 500 as well. He's done NASCAR, done so many things. This is just one of those huge personal accomplishments for him. Um, I think Dale Jr. would be a really fun and high-quality addition to what's normally the three-man rotation between Diffie, Tony Bell. I thought Townsend was just spectacular during the race. Been pretty critical of Paul Tracy this year, uh, a little bit towards the end of last year, and has nothing to do with the whole racist social media nonsense stuff. Just really have not felt that Paul has been on the marks uh, and saying a lot of just, yeah, really not, on top of his game by any means. I thought he did a spectacular job as well during the 500. Um, yeah, was really impressed with the three of them. I think adding Dale to that mix up there, a racer among racers, even though he's again, the fish out of the, out of water. I think that would be pretty awesome. Uh, the one person that I think did not fit was Danica. Um, I know she doesn't have a lot of reps doing this stuff. Uh, I know that, you know, I realize she hosted the SBs and has done a little bit of media stuff. She's just not a very comfortable human being. She's not someone who just wears herself comfortably. Uh, especially, uh, I would say, with the cameras on and live. Um, I mean, look, it's not like I'm great at it either. Most of us aren't great at it. So this isn't just taking a dig at Danica, which I know a lot of folks do. A lot of men say some really shitty things about Danica um, for whatever chauvinistic reasons. None of that for me. I just didn't think she was very good at doing what they asked her to do. And it also stood out to me very much that while Dale Jr. was certainly out of his element, but his kind of wide-eyed appreciation for what was happening I thought was very endearing. I mean, Mike Tirico, knowing Danica's background in IndyCar and the many Indy 500 she did, I think he rightfully believed he could lean on her for being his insider sitting next to her, just as Lee relies on Towney and PT to be that in the full-time booth. She just wasn't there. Uh, just really, it's been too long since she was an IndyCar driver. I know she did the one off with Ed Carpenter last year, but yeah. So whatever motivation there was, um, to bring her in, got it. Uh, she was there. She did it. I just thought she really stuck out as the one who didn't fit. And that was just based on her contributions, not her past, not her looks, not her anything just other than, how did everybody offer? What did everybody offer? And was there anybody that stood out as not fitting? And she just stuck out to me as the one who, if they were to not bring her back next year, I don't think it would detract in any way. Uh, let's see. Dean also says the main booth and our experts in the pits did their regular, very solid job. 
In my opinion, a streamlined broadcast would flow better. Surely the multiple network hosts at these desks adds cost to the broadcast. Um, yeah, again, it did seem a little weird to have the, hey, and here's our three-panel hosting. Okay, but here's our other three-panel hosting. Uh, but again, I get it. Wanting to have familiar faces to present the Indy 500 for the first time on NBC. I get it. Um, maybe my takeaway in your second point here, Dean, is maybe year two they don't. Maybe they still do. Who knows? Getting folks accustomed to NBC instead of ABC. Uh, maybe year three they don't. Whatever it is, um, I think there might be something streamlined. I did like having Mike Tirico there, but I've been a longtime fan of Mike's job as well. And like I said, throw, uh, throw Junior up in the booth. I think that becomes a, a fun and electric a uh, place to be for a couple of hours. Uh, let's see. Also say, since commercial breaks are a reality, how about NBC uh, researches what TNT short-lived NASCAR side-by-side screens look like? ABC and now NBC make the ad screen two-thirds of the TV and the live race uh, sitting in the reigning one-third. Looks like dead space at the top and bottom. Um, TNT had a side-by-side layout that didn't make the ad breaks look bad got a separate thing here where i asked you all to give me some feedback on uh, what i somewhat lamely titled the uh indie commercial 500 so we'll save that till that section there yeah um i believe nbc nbc sports i'm thinking they might have gotten the message that uh they did fumble a little bit in terms of frequency of ads in just general handling of uh, ads and bombarding folks there, Dean. But more on that here in just a little bit. Going to go to our pal Zach Smith and Gell. And you say it's a hard G like golf. I've been saying gel. So my apologies, Zach. And thank you for sending that in. And anybody whose last name or first name I mangle. Uh, this was a question you had for Simon. I only had so much time with him, Zach. So uh, just going to grab this myself. He said, any chance to get another crack at Lamar? How incredible would it be to race for the captain at Lamar? Any chance of that happening with potential future rule changes in, in IMSA and WAC? I think so, Zach. I really do. Uh, Simon told me, was it last year? Last year. He was uh, really wanting to ramp down his sports car commitments and not try and just do anything at anywhere, everywhere. Uh, so we've seen him do that a bit. Um Maybe that was this year he told me. I don't know. Uh, I apologize. But he's someone who's wanted to simplify things to make sure that his IndyCar stuff gets back to where it needs to be. We're seeing that happen. I'm hoping he will feel more comfortable to expand more. Know that he wants to add a Le Mans victory overall to his list of accomplishments. Uh, not sure we're going to get him to Monaco to win uh, an F1 race so he can have the triple crown. But um yeah, I would say I ex- where we expect things to go in the sports car side, which is for IMSA's Daytona Prototype International category, when it's up for a, a second-generation revision here in 2021, I think, 22, um, where we expect our friends in France at the 24 Hours of Le Mans to align themselves for both IMSA and the ACO to be on the same formula for the first time in a while that would allow – uh, the DPIs, the Acura DPIs that Roger Penske runs to go over and play in France, provided all that's going forward a couple of years from now. I'd absolutely expect Simon to be a part of that for sure. 
Um, and who knows where the uh, Ford program may or may not be by then. Could we have a Simon Pagano in one car uh, as the, the third driver and Sebastian Bourdais, Le Mans son, Sebastian Bourdais in the other? Uh, stranger things have happened. So I think, Zach, you're on to something here. And yeah, you know, winning the Indy 500, man. Um, and Roger Penske already saying, oh, yeah, he's coming back. I think this might be the thing that allows Simon to start saying, all right, <laughs> just let you know, there's this little country I might be from where they have a cool race that I want to win and I've done it before, but, uh, yeah, doing it with the captain might be the, uh, the best thing ever. Michael Mueller says, MP, if Joseph Newgarden wants to win the Indy 500, does he need to pay you and Miller to write that his seat at Penske is in jeopardy? He said, first Will Power, now Pagano. Apparently, the hot seat at Penske adds a few miles per hour down the straight at the speedway. Thanks, Michael. I needed that little laugh. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's not as if we had anything to do with anything. But, you know, I did try, by the way, a little underreported thing that's meaningless. So last year, I don't know, I think it was Friday at the Indy GP, uh, whatever it was. I think it was before qualifying, the final practice before qualifying knowing that Will Power and myself both have a uh, lifelong affinity for what we, I guess, would now call old-school rap, but at least for me was new-school rap when it came out. Um, and I've had this box of Yo! MTV Raps playing cards. They're not playing cards, good Lord, just trading cards. Uh, I think I bought that box a long time ago. Anyways, knowing that DJ Willie P is a fan of hip-hop as well, old-school hip-hop, I gave him a pack of those, uh, I think before qualifying for last year's GP, went out, qualified on the pole, won the race, then won the Indy 500. And so uh, seeing him at the GP this year, I brought another pack and said, all right, I don't know if any of your success last year had anything to do with you or the team, or if we just need to put it all down to a pack of Yo! MTV Raps cards. So just to make sure that we cover our bases, Here's another pack. Now, when I gave it to him, Will, who is prone to his mind wandering to lots of places other than where he is currently standing, um, I said those words more or less to him. He was looking off to the right, and I could tell was not hearing a damn thing I said. And put his hand out and receive the cards. And instead of doing what he did last year, which is open them up and seem to have fun looking at uh, MC hammer and big daddy Kane and public enemy and all other kinds of cards that came out. Uh, he was just completely distracted. Uh, I could have told him uh, I'm radioactive. I'm on fire. Uh, I'm going to run you over. Uh, you're the ugliest guy in the world. He wouldn't have heard anything that I said. Uh, he, I think finally heard, the sounds coming out of the person's face across from him stop. He then kind of snapped back to reality, realized that he'd been handed some Yo TV rap cards at all. Oh, thanks. Cool. And then walked away. So I don't know, Michael, if he opened them, that's what he did last year. So what I'm getting at is maybe Will's unsatisfying 2019 Indy 500 could be because he did not open the magical pack of yo mtv rap cards that he was given 
I'll also say that everything I just said is completely tongue-in-cheek and pulled out of my backside. It all did happen. But, yeah, uh, I wish that there was such thing as magical packs of UMTV rap cards because I'd make a lot of money selling them. But, nonetheless, um, yeah, I don't think we need to write about anybody's seats in Jeopardy for them to win. I've heard that Roger Penske guy, he and his team's pretty good at Indy. They, they have done okay there. So, um, but we can for sure start writing the uh, new garden boy. He's done. And, uh, yeah, if he does win next year and we do write those stories, Michael, clearly, um, we got one of those infinity stones stuck somewhere that that's all I'm saying. Uh, let's see, where should we go next? Why don't we go to Brad Fisher, who says, Tony Bell mentioned during the telecast that both engine manufacturers have a quote kill mode for their engines. What exactly does that do? I believe IndyCar regulates the boost. Very true, Brad. Uh, there is nothing that would allow by the press of a button for Chevy or Honda to have their motors defy the regulations. I mean, I guess they could try, but uh, that's not what we're talking about. Usually, it's going to be advancing the timing and trying to dump in a little bit more fuel, um, basically trying to get aggressive with how the motor is used. So while dialing up the boost to make more power is not really an option, you can try and get a little bit more aggressive with the combustion and the fuel being burned. Not something that is normally going to last very long if you keep abusing that hence why they call it uh you know quote kill mode um yeah it's one of those things where you try not to live in that place but use it as much as you know as minimal as possible so unless there's something else i just don't know about which is more than likely that's kind of sort of where things happen to fall all right let's get into a couple other fun ones here this one, I feel like I need to disqualify myself a little bit. Uh, this comes in from Ben Cohen. Hey, Ben, thanks for always being really cool, man. Uh, the really kind notes you sent me, along with many of you. Um, ben says, MP, what was your take on the Bourdais and Rahal accident? As a fan, I saw two cars going for position, and it caused some lift. Heck, uh, heck of a May, and congrats to uh, Ben Bretzman and Simon. And also adds again that uh, me and my wife are in his prayers. I need to disqualify myself a little bit from here. Um, I mean, I, I consider Graham a friend as well. You know, uh, I consider a lot of people friends. I doubt they all consider me friends, but you know, a pretty close relationship with Graham. Very honest. A lot of a lot of stuff we talk about never sees a light of day, and as it should be. Um, so he and I have the trust of one another. He doesn't always agree with what I write, nor should he, uh, nor should anybody. Uh, and I don't, don't always agree with his take. Sebastian, same thing. I'd say we're definitely closer. Have become, you know, very close on a personal level. Um, you know, really care for him and know that he really cares for me. Completely independent of motor racing. So that's one of why I want to disqualify my, disqualify myself a little bit. I know that when I spoke with Seb after the race, he said, you know, he wasn't feeling too good with seemingly everyone and everything pointing a hundred percent of the blame at him. I don't think Graham was wrong. 
I do just did think this, doing my best to be completely impartial. You'll be the judge of whether you think I am. I didn't see a lot of passes like the one that was being attempted by Graham happen on Sunday. Of course, I'm limited by what was shown on the broadcast. So it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just means in terms of what was shown, what I saw, either from the external cameras or in-car cameras, I didn't see a lot of two call them very fast, almost identically identically fast cars, and one trying to make a seemingly late pass diving towards the apex and then have the other one lift or move over and make room. I did see some where you had a slower lapped car. Uh, there was a, a speed differential where you go, okay, you know, jumped down the inside, made that pass. Maybe the guy that got passed had to check up a little or, you know, get on the steer, get on the wheel a little bit to keep the thing under control. But in terms of two really, you know, call it identically fast cars, I didn't see a lot of those types of moves happen from what was broadcast uh, into our home on Sunday. And so that's about the only thing that stood out to me as a little bit not odd, not bad, just different that made it a little bit hard for me to say, yeah, man, Seb, I love you to death, but boy, you were a thousand percent in the wrong. Uh, or Graham, you were a hundred percent in the clear or a hundred percent in the wrong. It seemed like there was a little bit of forcing of the issue. I realize there's some other caveats. Hey, it's getting to be late in the Indy 500. What do you think we're doing here? We're not playing patty cake. I did see the car ahead of Sebastian run deeper into the corner and turn in later and take a higher line. You could say, well, so clearly he could have just moved up a lane and everything would have been fine. Well, knowing Seb's way around Indianapolis, um, he tends not to be, from what I've seen, someone who is just apexing at the last possible second and turning in and staying almost a lane above the bottom of the track, which is what I kind of sort of saw the car ahead of Sebastian doing from uh, the in-car footage. Um, Knowing that Seb can often turn in a little bit early to try and give himself some room if he needs to be to adjust his line in case of an issue compared to turning in at the last minute, which gives you no wiggle room to adjust. Uh, I didn't see Seb with a whole lot of option at that exact point in time to then jump to a completely different line and still get through the corner in the way that he likes to corner. So not making excuses, just trying to look at what I saw. And, and my immediate takeaway was, damn, I wish those guys didn't crash because they both had some pretty awesome finishes on the horizon. But most of all, it just seemed like there was a little bit of if you could just float up into the air out of the way, Sebastian, that would make things easiest on us. Thinking that Seb was going to somehow lift or just turn to the right, entering a corner where he'd already started turning left. I, I think that might have been a little bit optimistic. 
I don't know. Again, I didn't ask. Uh, I, I, we were just communicating very quickly. I don't know if he saw exactly where Graham was or if where he started to turn down and then turn down even harder towards the apex that Graham was there. Um, so again, intent, I can't speak to because I don't know. I know that Graham thought that he had gone far enough, Ben, along, not all the way, but had gone far enough along to, you know, quote, have taken the corner, uh, something where Sebastian should have, uh, seated what that, uh, position. Sebastian also mentioned the, the hit that they had just before turning in. He said unsettled his car, uh, might've started the rear of the car sliding. Um, this just seemed like something that was just really not going to be on. And I know in Graham's comments after the crash about this is how you get people killed and so on and so forth. No, he is super mad. We saw some driving on Sunday. My good friend, Oriel Servia. I don't know what he was thinking. He's driving like an asshole with Rossi. That's another question we have. And I apologize. I'll mention your name who, who sent that in when I scroll down a bit, but it's just driving like a complete asshole. And I apologize for those with sensitive ears, but again, I'm just saying what's coming to mind. I have no idea if it was a case where Rossi was leading the race and Oriole was just deciding to fight and defend everything he could to prevent going down a lap. I'm not saying that would make it all right, but at least you could go, I get it. I understand why he is being so hyper aggressive and damn near running him into the wall. And if you're already a lap down and Rossi isn't the leader and you are pulling that again, pulling that stuff. I don't know why I haven't spoken with him. Yeah. I assume the glass was in his mirrors on the left again. I don't know. I assume his radio was working and his spotters were telling him guy who's currently running towards the front of the field, trying to get by you. I don't know that <laughs> that was out of character. So I mentioned that because um, while this might not answer the question, Ben, cause I don't know if I really do have a hard answer for this. Just as Orioles behavior with Rossi was totally out of character. Knowing Sebastian's recent history at Indianapolis, almost killing himself, how raw and honest he was in all of our end of day videos on racer. He just is not the guy that I know to be out there driving recklessly and F you, I'm going to slam the door. And if you don't move, then we're going to be in the wall and ball of flame and glory. The exact opposite, not afraid, but aware of his mortality as a result of crashing at Indy. So none of that's an excuse would just say that character wise, what Oriole did. I have no idea where that came from. I hope that goes away. We never see it again. It was unbefitting of his reputation, skill, and character. With what happened between Sebastian and Graham, there's a big disagreement of who should have given, who should have done this, who should have done that. 
Sebastian is known as a very hard racer, but I also saw him uh, when it was clear that Rossi was faster than him. Uh, make it not too hard for him to get by. I realized it was earlier in the race, but in a situation where it was clear that the guy behind him was going to get by and had the goods to get by, I saw Sebastian say, okay, I'm not going to put us at risk or do anything nuts here. Go on by. The fact that he didn't do that with Graham would just say that character-wise, it would not be 2019 Sebastian Bourdais-type character to just be psycho-aggressive, screw you, going to run you into the grass. I know that Graham got into the grass. Just saying, it doesn't seem like something Sebastian would do being hyper-aggressive there, which leads me to just think that instead of it being 100% Sebastian, 0% Graham, despite their feelings, I think there might be a little bit more of a shared misunderstanding uh, of the situation which led to the outcome than any you're driving trying to kill me and you're not being careful enough i don't know if if there is a more careful driver at the indianapolis 500 after 2017 than sebastian bourdais let's see let's go to some tv questions kevin kemp uh, says marshall since you watched the race on tv what is your opinion of the quantity of commercials during the race I had high hopes for NBC, but apparently it stands for nothing but commercials. Thanks, Kev. Uh, And then I asked, just honestly piggybacking off of your question, Kevin, asked folks uh, thoughts on the Indy Commercial 500 and got a couple of comments here. One from Tim Hubble, who said, even with the commercials, NBC was heads and tails better than ABC. Plus, more commercials means more advertisers and commercial partners signaling a broadcast part to a broadcast partner uh, that they're actually helping to grow the series. Dean Ackerman says the Monaco Grand Prix was a tad boring, but commercial free. The 13500 was great, especially after the midway point, but a hell of a lot of ad breaks. The toughest one was when Pagano and the other leaders were pitting uh, close to the end. Imagine an NFL game with your favorite team charging down the field and the broadcast host jumps to a commercial ah andrew miller says decided to rewatch it on nbc gold and got the silence left in place for the commercials and that really got annoying he says really disappointed uh in one of my quote guys in Serbia acting like a jerk andrew was one who mentioned this so thanks andrew uh, but it did give one of the most exciting broadcast moments after rossi's fuel problem pit stop uh, and then says, looking forward to seeing Simon's dog, Norman, in the Victory Lane pictures. Had the same thought, guys, on the commercials that, boy, did it seem like they were coming constantly. In a situation like this, and I'm sorry to keep pulling this out, if my days were completely normal, well, A, I would have been at the 500 and might not have seen all the commercials because uh, I wouldn't have been watching on TV, but at least sitting on my butt, watching it for the first time at home since, I think, 2002, um, it did stand out to me like, boy, there's a lot of commercials. And what I'd normally do is try and go back and watch or do some sort of commercial comparison, say, to last year. 
on ABC. Because if it feels like there's a lot this year, you'd at least I'd at least like to have the ability to go back and say, okay, actually, if there were 50 last year, there were 54 this year. Okay, it just felt like there were more, but there really weren't. I don't know. I haven't had the time to go back and look. I probably won't. I can just tell you general feeling. It sure felt like there were an excessive amount of commercials. Now, maybe that sounds weird. As Tim mentioned, well, wouldn't a bunch of commercials really mean a good thing for the sport and so on? Yeah, I can't argue that point at all, Tim. What I would just suggest to NBC for next year's race is we didn't have a lot of yellows. So we know that conspired against things, right? Normally there's more yellows than we had, which is really easy. And we'll be back. We'll be right back. And they knock out eight commercials and come back while there's a big cleanup going on. We didn't have a ton of those. We really didn't have many yellows. So that made it hard for NBC to work them in uh, while, um, while we had a lot of green flag racing. So there were four total cautions uh one of them was early for that toe in for colton herda we then had kyle kaiser's crash uh then we had what uh marcus erickson um taking himself out for a little while in pit lane then we had the big crash towards the end so they didn't have a ton of yellows to work stuff in i get that and, and that it's a very significant factor to acknowledge what i would just offer though and i realize that you know they did have their version of side by side pacing's uh, pacing's a thing you know it just is i'm trying to remember what tv show it was uh there's something that my wife and i really enjoy watching this a couple months ago whatever it was we were doing the whole binge watching thing and it just seemed like every time things would start to get really interesting there was some dynamic tension building up between this character and the other. Or this one pulled a gun or whatever. But, like, you're sitting there and kind of your blood pressure is coming up slowly and it's getting there and it's starting to build, which is what you're hoping to have in an hour-long drama, whatever the heck it was. Bam, commercial. And you go, oh, was, oh, okay. Kind of resets and go back to zero and come back and that same maybe level of dramatic tension was presented on the screen, but they just popped the balloon man and chucked three or four minutes of commercials at you, whatever it was. And you go, okay, well that's gone. Uh, and then it build again. And again, I, I wish I remembered the name of the show, how to get away with murder. Who knows what it was? Uh, but I just, my wife and I were both sitting there like, I swear, like they try and pick the most inopportune time to break the momentum, break the tension, and just have this feel like a really kind of uh, 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 stop, start, segmented thing that kind of gets going a little bit, but then it starts a little bit. That was kind of my viewing experience as well for the Indy 500. So I love the fact that, in theory, NBC was flooded with advertisers wanting to show their stuff, I realized that they had the side-by-side uh, -side stuff. There's also just something, as Dean mentioned, about the cutting away while your team is charging towards the end zone, or we'll pick whatever analogy. I would almost rather have longer ad breaks 
knowing that I'm quote missing more action or there's more side by side, which, you know, it's kind of hard to really stay plugged in when you're hearing the audio of the commercial instead of this, that, and the other, and the screen's reduced. But yeah, I know for me, I look at an Indy 500 or even a sports car race where, you know, this is minimum three hours, six hours, 12, whatever. Of course you have ad breaks to work in, but there just seemed to be a general lack of recognition that part of the viewing enjoyment experience is building, building. And when you just keep chopping things and popping that balloon, you go, all right, we're off to, okay, we're off to commercial again. Jesus, it's feeling hard to latch onto this and really get a feel for whatever is developing. Is there drama? Is there tension? Is there a theme? Yeah. Um, it's not as if the stuff is easy. It's so easy for me and anyone else to do the armchair quarterback. And again, <laughs> I'm sure I have a number of friends at NBC right now that are saying, Pruitt, just shut up. Uh, and I, but, and I say that knowing that every single day I get the same exact thing. I woke up to a great email this morning from someone telling me I need to change my interviewing style completely. And I'm also fat and need to lose weight. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> Great day. Um, yeah, again, I get this every single day. Not a complaint. Comes with the job. Fully accepted. But it's just, you know, again, the armchair quarterbacking I get. So uh, whereas I get folks every day telling me to do everything I do differently, um, I realize that I'm doing the same thing here with friends at NBC, I can just share in those of you who watched the race and felt like there was something that broke your ability to really feel like there was a flow in something that was developing consistently because there was a constant dive towards commercial. And hopefully there are ways that that can be improved for next year's event and more so that there is not that, uh, that feeling that persists into year two of the old 500. All right, let's get to the last couple of questions you sent in for me. Uh, da, 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 where shall we go? I'm seeing a couple here that I sent in. Or I, yeah, I guess I sent in and asked you all to comment on. Uh, Scott Hodgkins says, after the Firestone, Firestone Fast 9. Good Lord, I need to get some sleep. Uh, Alexander Rossi seemed really upset over, quote, circumstances beyond our control that will get dealt with. What was he referring to? Scott, I don't know. Um, I don't always know what that uh, dear boy's talking about, but uh, it must have been serious. Uh, let's see. Where else should we go here? Andrew Miller says, shame that James Davison's day effectively ended so soon uh he would have been interesting to see him in the lead pack uh towards the end i agree i I really thought well the coin team as a whole was very very impressive uh come race day and qualifying too i mean james qualified 15th in the third coin car and the third coin car is not always the rocket ship among the group um another thing too is uh, a friend of mine super veteran uh indycar mechanic remind me of something that had been mentioned uh, quite a few times leading up to the race. And that was the, uh, the new advanced frontal protection device, the AFP that, yeah, well, drivers had gotten to run with it for a while and had gotten a feel for it. 
there's still might have been some serious concerns about folks being able to see and spot their pit box and you know the afp might have just added to some problems had an ugly day on pit lane in general not blaming it all on the afp by any means but i mean we had our boy davison miss his pit stall altogether uh then tried to dive over elio rammed him from behind um tires flying all over the place we had jordan king uh clobbering his uh, right front uh, mechanic slash tire changer we had this we had that um yeah not a pretty day but coming back to your point here scott yeah um or not scott i apologize uh coming back to your point here uh i would say that yeah for sure andrew um minus that mistake on james's part and then compounding of that mistake by elio yeah, I mean, there there would have been every reason to believe Davison was on pace for a top 10 finish. And although I mentioned earlier, he might not be uh, someone who is beloved by the rest uh, of the Indy 500 drivers. Man, that kid put him in a good card, Indy, and there's fireworks coming. And so like him, hate him, I don't care. Uh, that kid's going to put on a show and uh, for that and that alone really enjoy having him in the field uh michael perrin you said will power is unhappy with the penalty at his pit stop whilst he was penalized for hitting his crew which is uh open to discussion he clearly ran over an air hose that's usually a penalty on departure is it not uh, a penalty on entry he says that makes the penalty valid even if the wording uh, is off hitting a crew member instead of hitting equipment that was my take on things as well michael uh, I should have asked Kyle Novak about this, so my apologies for failing to do so. But at least as I read things or inserted myself and said, if I was race director, how would have I? How would I have applied a, that penalty? I would not have called out the pit equipment. I would have called out uh, for lightly nudging uh, Quinton Washington as refueler. You know, big Q. God, he is just the sweetest guy in the world um not that that means anything uh, regarding this but yeah you saw q stumble fall over the left rear tire kind of get himself back up um you know again i know will was saying well he kind of stumbled and you know if i brushed him at anything that was it and etc uh, etc et at least as i saw it, michael this was a case of race control saying thinking we can either ding him for running over the air hose or making contact with a crew member we would rather call out the crew member side to drive home the severity and how serious we take such an infraction and i again i'm assuming that i'm placing myself in kyle's position and his uh, fellow stewards that often uh, do the deciding for him that being our lion dyke and max pappas but yeah uh, given the choice between the two and wanting to send a message yeah clearly a violation um love will i also know that whenever will gets penalized we usually hear comments like this and there's a store there's stories that come out like this power and rage that he was penalized for doing the thing that was a penalty um i think had they said run over the air hose maybe he would have had less to say about this but i think indycar if they did this made the right call by saying nope we're going to call you for the first mistake, um, which was making contact with a crew member. 
All right, final couple of things here. Um, I asked you for your thoughts on aspects of the NBC coverage that uh, worked best while the cars are on track and also things that might be improved. Um, had a number of, again, interesting things added in here that are uh, a little bit different from some of the other things we discussed. Uh, let's see. Had some comments, again, some more negative comments about IMS Radio. Uh, again, I didn't listen to it. Uh, I like, I really do like a lot of the work that they do, but that doesn't mean anything uh, in relation to your question here. Michael Mueller adds in, as I watched every minute of coverage from pre-race to post-race wrap-up, my overall impression was that ABC conveyed a level of respect to the tradition and importance of the event that I've not seen before. There was genuine excitement and passion from the entire broadcast team, and that enhances the experience for the viewers. Uh, mentioned a couple of other points as well. Uh, I'm I'm right there with you, Michael. Uh, obviously, a couple of opinions aside on the pacing uh, of commercials, and also you know where they might not invite Danica back and shift Dale Jr to the uh the the full-time booth what impressed me i think were some of the same things that impressed you the entire hour plus leading up to the green flag (laughs) and the sports emmy goes to nbc good lord there was some beautiful work done there beautiful decision making uh, bringing in the Apollo angle. I mean, what? I never thought of that. I mean, I'm not saying I should. I'm just saying, like, some of these things is a guy who's constantly trying to think of things and themes and connections and anniversaries and uh, the celebrating of the uh, new enlistees and some of those very same people, if not those exact same people, then being shown uh at the track but also the beautiful package they did beforehand with them and veterans as well celebrating that uh incorporating some of the drive like and ready footage um there's just yeah it was beautiful to see the highly passionate group of folks at NBC Sports um Terry Lingner and his group Rich O'Connor I mean at the top of the whole food chain is uh Sam Flood but so many producers, so many coordinating producers, so many run on down the list, folks who filmed, edited everything. Um, as a bit of a sentimental goober, <laughs> um, um, someone was cutting onions on a couple of occasions leading up before we got to any of the songs, and I always start shedding a tear with... Um, God bless America and you name it. But yeah, I, I just, Michael, I really, uh, I really cannot say enough positive things about NBC's overall treatment of everything they brought forth for the race. Um, I, I, yeah, boy, there's a lot of people who should be really proud and for the tweaks and complaints and the criticisms and the arm, the, the Monday morning armchair quarterbacking, God, good Lord. Um, those are all things that are just easily fixable. Nothing 
nothing that cannot be improved. And those are just my opinions. Maybe others would say, no, man, most of what you said doesn't even fit. They're good. Keep doing what they're doing. Uh, let's see a couple other things. Yeah. A couple of folks says, Hey, missed a little bit of green flags coming to and from commercials. Um, did say that the coverage from Jeff, uh, Zerneski here, that the coverage made it feel like a can't miss event for the casual or even the non fan. Uh, another person, Justin Stinson mentioned complaint about the coverage typically came on restarts, some great action that was missed, uh, and so on. Um, I really do think they did some pretty, pretty amazing stuff here. So congratulations to NBC. No vast disrespect to ABC, but presented with similar choices uh, on what to do with intro shows, with broadcast talent, you name it. Um, It was really awesome to see the thing that we believed for many years that in the hands of another broadcaster, that the Indianapolis 500 could be a heck of a lot more than what it was as presented to the world. And that is exactly what they did. So good on them. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to one of the last things here? And that was me asking thoughts on Alexander Rossi's pit stop tantrum and throwing Honda under the bus with his first post-raced words to NBC. Uh, let's see. Tim Hubble says at least he didn't pull a Robbie Gordon and call his Honda a pig. Um, uh, let's see what else. Justin Stinson says is throwing Honda under the bus. Or is it throwing Honda under the bus? If it's true, I understood his frustrations, um, in the car with a pit stop blocking on track and immediately upon exiting the car in regards to his performance. It seemed to me that once Rossi realized his voice was being broadcast over the PA, his demeanor immediately changed and improved. Uh, I think the Honda horsepower comment was his honest and immediate reaction and rings true for the entire month. Uh, isn't that what we as fans want to hear from a driver as opposed to the typical reading of the corporate list of sponsors in standard form answers? Question mark. Um, Ed Berg says, Marshall, I think tantrum, my use of the expression tantrum, denotes baseless anger. Uh, Alexander was venting frustration at fueling problems almost every year Indy. As for Honda, probably not the smartest idea after seeing how Alonzo was excommunicated but then again if it happened uh uh but then again uh, if it happened he'd be in a chevy uh let's see zachary bircham says the guy sees himself as a potential four-time winner at this point with lost opportunity so i get the frustration and his mention of a power deficit seemed to be common knowledge and the well-timed caution that ironically saved rossi after pit stop uh, kind of saved pagino due to mile per gallon deficits. And there are a couple of other comments similar to, you know, hey, um, don't we want these guys to tell us the truth and to be honest? I have no argument there at all. A um, little bit of background I'll give here, which is maybe why I phrase things as throwing them under the bus. Um, that's how I received it based on maybe a little bit of inside baseball stuff here. Uh, just a couple things and tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. This was a known thing, as some of you mentioned. This wasn't a revelation, I guess, is what stood out to me. And in how the question was posed to him, uh, you know, asking what was the thing that, you know, was there a thing that you think essentially, you know, 
prevented you from being able to win? The first answer being horsepower. As someone who is larger than he should be. (laughs) Folks who feel the need to tell me that I'm fat, for example. You go, okay, got it. You know, absolutely, you're right to say whatever you want. It's the obvious thing, though, right? Not news to me. You tell the guy that is short, that he's short. Okay, the guy's short. You really think you're the person after 30 years of life that this person just realized, holy crap, I must be short. This is a known thing in Honda not having the top end horsepower that was needed to get on the front row and qualifying or to have a significant shot at winning the race. Although Rossi did lead late, did lead, you know, a little bit, was looking pretty strong. His fastest lap was certainly faster than Simon's. Um, Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I guess, again, this is a lot of stuff going into my immediate reaction, knowing a lot of the background here. This was an obvious thing. If you're going to mention the obvious thing that Honda knows as well, Honda has seen Honda just lost the race. Honda just watched not Honda win. (laughs) Honda just saw they are not going to victory lane and have no reason. So as stinging a loss as it was to Rossi, not belittling his, his feelings at all. I mean, this guy's again, this guy's going to be a three or four time Indy 500 winner by the time he retires. If, uh, things go the way they should. But this is one of those things where you say, huh? Okay. Uh, If you're wanting to put that sharp of a point on the thing that is already known that your engine manufacturer already knows that, but granted you were just in with the fight for the win. What came to mind here most of all was actually both the reference to Alonzo more on the McLaren side though, from formula one and also Roger Penske and team Penske. There is no team that is more hyper aware in, I don't know how I should phrase this more of a documentarian of what people say and how they say it. than team Penske, uh, the littlest thing that you might think they didn't see, they didn't catch. They weren't cottoned on to, the senior brass there pick up on. And I'm just talking about their drivers. I'm talking about, ooh, did you see how that guy reacted to this? How this guy said that? I'm not saying that Alexander Rossi getting out of the car after losing the Indy 500 was thinking about Roger Penske, Team Penske, their interest in hiring him, leaving Andretti Autosport. I'm not saying any of those things are flashing through his brain, nor should they have been. I just know that as someone who's done this for a while and knows the folks at Penske and seen how they work and heard a lot of things about how they do things and how observative they are. This is the kind of thing where if Simon Pagano lost the race because Alexander Rossi had more horsepower, Simon Pagano would not climb out of the car and say, Horsepower is what lost me the race. Um, I mean, Roger Penske is a thousand years old. I'm fairly convinced 
he would lift Simon off the ground with one hand, Terminator style, back in the garage if he or any of his drivers would utter such a thing. Don't embarrass a key partner like that. Second of all, since it's not a secret, if you're going to draw that fine of a point on it, are you just trying to embarrass the company? Are you trying? What is it? What motive is there? If you know you're not saying anything that's original or unclear to anyone, why would you do that? So this is, again, this is probably over analysis. I'm not saying that any and all of this is going through Alexander's head. Just saying that standing back watching it, my first thought was, oh, there's some folks in Japan and in Valencia, California, where Honda Performance Development is based and where Honda North America is in Southern California. And there's a lot of people going, really? Also knowing that Honda has expressed interest privately, reportedly, allegedly, to want to get behind a small number of drivers, one of them very likely named Alexander Rossi from a funding and contract standpoint and, you know, be someone, be an entity with a, a strong ability to help steer and control some of the drivers they believe can win many championships and Indy 500s for them. There's a lot of stuff that came to my mind that, Alexander would have no reason for any of those things to bother him uh, 90 seconds or two minutes or whatever after getting out of the car. I just know that with how harsh Honda reacted to some statements from McLaren and Alonzo excommunicating them forever as a result of that, um, knowing how Honda wants to be uh, a long-term partner with Rossi, knowing that it was clear for all that Chevys were going to own the day, even though Alexander was really the only Honda that looked like it was capable. Sato there as well, a little bit, but looked like something strange would have to happen for Chevy to not win. Just saying. Uh, you don't necessarily have to call the fat guy fat or the short guy short uh, unless you're trying to drive home some kind of other message which might not be in your best interest. So anyways, a little bit of uh, background there. And don't disagree with anything that uh, any of you said on that front as well. Uh, let me take a quick little perusal here through what we got. It's a lot. You guys send in a lot, and I thank you for sending in a lot uh, it's Indy 500, man. It's the uh, post-race Indy 500 week in IndyCar. So, yeah, sorry this is going to be a big old big old episode to download. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I really appreciate all the time that you took to send things in. So thank you again to Kyle Novak for sharing everything that he did uh, here on a Memorial Day, uh, giving us some insights there about their decisions in race control. And once more to all the great questions that you've sent in. Uh, so just to give you an update here on what's going on at home. Um, some of you may know that in September last year, right when I got home from the Portland IndyCar race, we found out that my wife had breast cancer. We went into surgery. 
I think it was October 30th, November 1st, something like that. And uh, it was a fairly sizable tumor that they removed. Timing, according to the doctor, they say they'd like you to wait three months or so, maybe four, depending on the size of the incision, for the scar tissue to build and heal and body to uh, reconstruct itself there before they do a mammogram uh, because it's really hard to see through that really dense scar tissue. And so um, I don't remember the exact timing, but um, somewhere I think maybe March, early April, something like that, um, had the mammogram and found out that the uh, breast cancer had returned to the same spot. Not as big as it was the first time around, but um, so yeah, um, just in a matter of months, uh, well, we had hoped we were done and out of the cancer fight or right back in. Um, I don't think I mentioned that, uh, that it had returned. There's no real reason. Uh, and not saying that's news, but uh, just would appreciate if kind of treat this as uh, talking among family here. Um, really don't need this being... Um, Anything more than just a conversation here, hopefully. Um, so cancer returned kind of out of nowhere. Just real debilitating back pain. Came and went and getting ready to leave for Indy for what would be an 18-day trip. I uh, was very concerned but also saw that, okay, um, this, this, you know, the back pain and problems that weren't unfamiliar to us, even though this seemed to be really the most extreme version um, we could recall, um, you know, it, it's flared up, gotten really bad, but also drastically improved. And just as I effectively was getting ready to fly off for Indy, uh, had it hit again. And so, yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of guilt there, um, in effectively choosing work over my wife and the belief that this would be getting better. Uh, within a couple days, you know, week at most. Um, also knowing the Indy 500s, you know, probably the most important month, the month of May is the most important month of what I do every year for my clients. So, um, you know, she and I knew this, it wasn't as if I just took off. Um, she and I knew this, um, we're hoping and expecting everything to recover without me here to help her though. And, um, she did her absolute best uh, to take care of herself and to uh, be as still as possible and heal, working from home a lot. And uh, started to get into qualifying weekend, just doing our daily FaceTiming and otherwise, or just on the phone, could just hear that uh, that improvement arc that we had seen once before it was just not really happening. And uh, just... She was saying how the pain was actually increasing more and more, and she was really struggling to do a lot of basic things. Um, And so, honestly, starting towards the end of qualifying weekend is where I started thinking, okay, we need to come up with a solution here. And um, knowing, again, Robin's commitments to NBC, you know, the plan all along was for me to lead the daily coverage for Racer, uh, and again, happy to do it, love to do it. It's my passion. Um, 
but also knowing that, you know, this coverage is on my shoulders. And uh, so, yeah, just having to do that ugly thing of balancing life, being a, a spouse and also having work responsibilities. And uh, Monday night spoke with her and uh, saw her and it was, it was bad. It was really bad. And yeah, uh, regrets definitely uh, not a person that lives with regret or guilt. Um, so I'm, I'm going to work out, uh, work through some of these things right now. Um, as blunt as I can be, if I was more of a man, I would have hit the stop button Monday evening and said, I'm out of here first thing in the morning. Uh, I got to get home. I don't know what all's going on, but I can see things are bad. Um, trying to be the guy that's wanting to be the, you know, not let anybody down. Um, other than my wife, apparently, um, I said, Hey, I'm going to see if I can find a in-home nurse or care, someone who can come and help. Um, just with some of the basics, my wife said she was struggling to do. And as we sometimes do, I know I do it as well. Uh, I was under reporting the severity of some things. Uh, I do that. And uh, she was also not wanting to, um, put that burden on me, uh, while I was away on this trip. And so, uh, found this woman, an absolute angel by the name of Joy, who's a registered nurse and also works in the emergency room at a hospital within a mile of us. And uh, called Joy and said, uh, hey, this is Tuesday morning. If uh, you get a chance, you know, would it be possible just to go by and, and see my wife, see, ask her ways you could help her? Here's a couple of ideas of things I think she might, you know, could really use help with. Let me know what it'll cost. Um, but I could really use someone who's with her uh, effectively Tuesday through Sunday and, um, I'll figure out a way to pay for it, but I just need someone who can be there with her cause I need to be here. Um, yeah. So, uh, joy, uh, got to my wife, um, later Tuesday afternoon, which would have been early Tuesday evening, Indianapolis time. And she called me almost right away and said, I am rushing your wife to the ER and, uh, got her there and found, you know, there's all kinds of things beyond the, uh, crippling back pain and, and immobility, you know, uh, dehydration and infection and just a lot of ugly, uh, ugly things. I, I honestly, you know, I don't think my wife knew things were that bad for her as well. Um, but anyways, joy, who's just truly, um, a genuine godsend, um, got her there and, um, you know, 24 hours later than I should have, I finally, um, stepped up and said, I have to leave. And, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, um, worrying about how that might be received, worrying that I was, uh, having to abandon my post, um, yeah, Paul Fanner and the racer team just alleviated any concern there, but uh, I still should have done that uh, a day earlier. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll process that um, on my own. But um, so once they're able to run some tests, 
and we're still waiting for some final ones to get back. We have learned that the uh, type of cancer that uh, we've been fighting um, with her breast has also um, found a home uh, in her back. Um, So that's what's going on. Um, So we're now fighting cancer on two fronts. Um, And luckily the doctors that we have now and are found in a wholly independent medical system than the ones we went to originally, the ones we were looking, we were thinking we're going to be with. Um, They have just come up with a bunch of great plans, great ideas. Um, Having been through this once at least, we know know the lingo a little bit and the thoughts on a lot of things, and everything's really adding up. So uh, we're going to be starting radiation in the morning uh, about, It's 2.18 right now, so yeah, we're going to be starting that at 8 a.m. And um, then the next day, and this is something where if you are uh, a person who believes in God, whatever denomination, um, would really truly appreciate your prayers. Um, On Wednesday, they are going to be performing surgery on Chabrel's back trying to uh, kill some of the tumors there, trying to alleviate some of the um, crazy uh, pressure from everything that's uh, surrounding her spine and whatnot. And the, uh, the, the surgeon performing the procedure, who everyone says is amazing and the best, um, even he said he's nervous because it's... Uh, one of the situations where, uh, again, his description that, you know, if he slips or makes the slightest mistake, uh, she could be paralyzed. So, that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with. We're not the only ones. Uh, there are a lot of people in the IndyCar community they're going through this in just regular life. So, um, you know, I'm just going to try and be as committed as possible to being as upfront as I can about what's going on, not for any odd reason, but because I just feel like the more folks hear that this is real and normal and happening in people's lives, I don't know. Empathy, it seems like, uh, is not always in uh, in stock. And although you all have just showered my wife and I with warm wishes, the offers of prayers, uh, actual prayers, just an amazing amount of, of warmth and love, um, I don't know. Uh, this isn't meant to try and receive sympathy or anything else. I just figure that you know, the more we share our real experiences, not the prettied up, polished, uh, Instagram, perfect, uh, super filter applied lives. Um, I don't know. Uh, I just think the more we can be real with one another, even the fears and the things that you're embarrassed of, I'm embarrassed of, and my shortcomings and failings, um, 
Looks like the more we can do that with one another, maybe that's that's not a bad thing. So I am absolutely terrified. I have faith. I have absolute faith that we will come through this okay. And that is anchored in my faith. I'm also struggling to stay in that faith and uh, being in the world, stepping out of faith, um, this scares the living daylights out of me and the thought of losing her with uh, now fighting cancer on two fronts and a really tricky back procedure that um, needs to be done but also carries a high risk. where it's at my friends so love to give you some sort of funny quippy thing which I try to do to sign off um, I know I have asked for far too much of your time for this episode which is running far too long and maybe part of this of me just being able to talk in an unguarded fashion um, maybe that'll help me out a little bit too So, um, for those who have stayed here to the end, um, just thank you. Thank you to everybody. And I'm hoping that next week's episode and the one after and the one after that, I'm hoping that they are just lighter and easier and I have nothing but really positive things to report and I don't have to spend as much time talking about things that aren't IndyCar related. 